All right, folks, we're coming to you from the exchange for episode 1.2 of the Corpus Christi Coastal Bent. We decided to do an episode 1.2 instead of a, an episode 2 right. uh, because we wanted, or at least I, I know I wanted to, <laughs> expand on some of the ideas we were talking about in the first episode. Um, and so instead of moving on to a whole nother topic, uh, we were like, hey, Let's keep talking about this. Well, we'd be hypocrites if we did the whole thing. If we didn't finish what we started, that was kind of one right. thing to talk about. So we got to finish what we started. Right, right, exactly. And it's uh, it's Cinco de Mayo. Yes, right? happy Cinco de Mayo. It's Sunday, so it's brunch here up at the Exchange. Uh, full buffet, pancake station, carving station, omelet station, $15 carafes of mimosa. Right, two dollar refills. Two dollar refills. You can get drunk oh, for dang. nothing. You'll be asleep by three. <laughs> right? For real. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's May fifth. May fourth was yesterday. May the fourth be with you. You know, Star Wars all day. Yes. Uh, What's well, gone now? So. Yeah. Today uh-huh. it's it's Mexican beer and and fights in the street yeah. all day. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh man. Now, uh, and tequila and margaritas. Oh, yes. Don't forget margaritas. Margaritas are man. important. Oh, they are margaritas very important. important. Extremely important. Um, yeah, so we're going to expand on the the last episode's topic is, is the world getting better or worse? And we went through a lot of the, uh, the metrics, a lot of the science. Um, much of it had its progenesis in the book. Enlightenment Now by Steven Pinker, uh, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. Uh, and I can't stress enough how much you need to read this book. Um, we barely, like, as much, as, as much information as we went over, we barely touched oh, man, the yeah. amount of information right. in this book. Maybe a dent we put in it. Maybe. Yeah, a yeah. tiny dent. Yeah. There is so much information in this book. It's, it's a big book. I mean, look at the size of it. You know, and it covers a whole lot. Uh, Steven Pinker is uh, a professor of psychology at Harvard University. Uh, he is, let's see, two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist, an elected member of the National Academy of Sciences, uh, Humanist of the Year, recipient of nine honorary doc- doctorates, uh, Times 100 Most Influential People in the World Today, and chair of the Usage Panel on the American Heritage Dictionary. He also writes frequently for the New York Times, The Guardian, and other publica- publications. So the dude is credentialed out the ass. Oh, uh, and we, uh, we, we stressed his TED Talks uh, in the last episode as well. Yes. So, man, if you haven't seen Steven Pinker's TED Talks, jump onto YouTube, Steven Pinker, TED Talk. I'm telling you, you're going to get a lot of great information. It's good stuff. All the research there, all the numbers are there for right. you. He's got everything to back it up and more. Uh, and I just want to I want to crack open uh, Enlightenment now just a little bit and just read just one of the parts that's in the very, very beginning of the book. Uh, part one, Enlightenment. And uh, Stephen Pinker talks about how he got a he got a, a question from a student and the student was essentially asking, you know, like, What's what's the meaning of life? Like, why are we even here? Mm-hmm. You know, and they're they're coming from a, like an atheistic, materialistic kind of position. Like, if if this is all just material, okay. um, flying around in the universe aimlessly, uh, that was that was set out, you know, by the Big Bang, and it's all determined. Then, you know, why even be here? Why why do what we do? Right. And Steven Pinker's answer, right here in the very beginning of the book, it's on page three. Mm is an astounding 
answer. So he, he writes, in the very act of asking that question, you are seeking reasons for your convictions, and so you are committed to reason as the means to discover and justify what is important to you, and there are so many reasons to live. As a sentient being, you have the potential to flourish. You can refine your faculty of reason itself by learning and debating. You can seek explanations of the natural world through science and insight into the human condition through the arts and humanities. You can make the most of your capacity for pleasure and satisfaction, which allowed your ancestors to thrive and thereby allowed you to exist. You can appreciate the beauty and riches of the natural and cultural world as the air of billions of years of life perpetuating itself, you can perpetuate life in turn. You can be endowed with a sense of sympathy, the ability to like, love, respect, help, and show kindness, and you can enjoy the gift of mutual benevolence with friends, family, and colleagues. And because reason tells you that none of this is particular to you, you have the responsibility to provide to others what you expect for yourself. You can foster the welfare of other sentient beings by enhancing life, health, knowledge, freedom, abundance, safety, beauty, and peace. History shows that when we sympathize with others and apply our ingenuity to improving the human condition, we can make progress in doing so, and you can help continue that progress. Wow. That's, a, that's a great answer. That's such a good answer. Like, you know, even like Stephen Pinker coming from a materialistic perspective, uh, uh, mindset coming from that position he's not even coming from a religious position but that was as good as any religious answer i've ever heard right you know he did he did a great job uh field or, uh, uh answering that question when it was fielded to him uh, and that's why i say you gotta pick up this book you gotta read this book this man gives you a perspective that other people simply don't seem to have at least nowadays mm-hmm he talks about enlightenment, and, and that's a period of time in human history, the enlightenment, uh, that started in the late 1600s and went on through the 1800s, okay. where uh, reason and science was established, where um, the welfare of human beings became something that was, that was forefront in our minds instead of just survival, you right. know, um, where being fair you know, became a thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, stuff like liberty, mm-hmm. the idea that individuals are sovereign. That's another thing that the Enlightenment uh, was was the progenesis of. Mm-hmm. With, without the Enlightenment, we, we wouldn't have, well, without the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, we wouldn't have the idea of human beings being free, you know, right, and right. being sovereign individuals. You mm-hmm. own yourself. It's mm-hmm. not the king that owns you. Mm-hmm. It's not the state that owns you. It's you. You're your own person. Yeah. yeah. You are your own personal property. Yep. Now, many of them came from a religious standpoint. And it, it, yes, you, you are your own personal property, but then that is also God's property. Right. You right, know, right, which I, I, I don't think is such a bad idea in that if you, if you don't think of yourself as like owned by yourself, you know, I mean, though that is still true, mm-hmm. but if the ultimate owner of who you are is God, then you're far less likely to do destructive things to yourself Definitely. because you're destroying something that isn't completely owned by you, right. you know, right. uh, 
I, th- I think he his stress of the Enlightenment, Stephen Pinker's stressing the Enlightenment and trying to uh, bring about a new a rebirth of the Enlightenment mm-hmm. um, is extremely important in this time. I think it's exactly what we need. Right. I agree. You know, I totally agree. It's exactly what we need in this time. Uh, we went over a lot of the facts in the last episode. Like I said, many of them came from the book, um, and then others I researched independently on online. Uh, we started with what population growth, mm-hmm. yeah, yep, and how overpopulation is just not a thing. It's not a thing. It doesn't yeah, exist. <laughs> I mean it's, it's not a thing. I mean it could one day, but right now it's I mean, not. Yeah, it's really not. Uh, there's plenty of room on the earth. Uh, we went through a lot of the facts, uh, like for example, between 1960 and 2016, the world's population grew 145 percent. Over the same period of time, world per capita income rose 183 percent, and between 1981 and 2013, poverty fell 75 percent. In 1961, food supply in 54 countries was less than 2k daily calories per person, so less than 2,000 calories per person. That was only true for only two countries in 2013. That comes out of the Cato Institute. So as population increases, mm-hmm. income increases right. around the world. Mm-hmm. People make more money. And commodities, the price of everyday uh, materials, goes down. Right. Which the idea is if we're overpopulating the earth, then the all the commodities should be more expensive because they're more rare. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem to be the case. In fact, it seems... Uh, the opposite is happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they were. We've got that. Oh, what was that one number? Three hundred and seventy-six percent more efficient. I think is what it was. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. It was three hundred and seventy-six percent. Or no, excuse me. Whoa, I got it wrong. Three hundred seventy-nine point six percent more abundant. That's oh. that's how that's how more abundant we are. Uh, since, let's see, it was 20 years ago. Oh, no, 1980. Or, yes, the Earth is 379.6% more abundant in 2017 than it was in 1980. So we're 376% more abundant. That that means resources aren't becoming scarce. It's quite the opposite. They're growing. We're getting more resources. Uh, What all this means is that every additional human being born on the planet appears to make resources proportionally more plentiful for the rest of us. And that one comes out of uh, humanprogress.org. It's the Simon Abundance Index by Marion Tupi and Professor Professor Gail Pooley. I always almost (laughs) screw that name up. Professor Gail Pooley. (laughs) You know. But yeah, uh, that was one of those. they, They did the Simon Abundance Index, which it tracked resource abundance mm-hmm. and correlated it with population and as the population increases resources become more abundant and thus cheaper right you know uh and then there was we discussed uh, uh paul elric mm-hmm. the butterfly scientist mm-hmm. that made all the gloom and doom prophecies in the 1960s about what the year 2000 was going to look yeah, like. Yeah yeah, 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 he said stuff like, uh, I'd put even money that England or the UK doesn't exist right, right, by the right. year 2000, uh, that the population in the United States would decrease dramatically due to immense death uh, from pesticides and disease and starvation. Every single prediction this guy wrong. made, yeah, was all they were all wrong. Dead wrong. Uh, and then before that, you had Thomas Malthus in 1798 who made the prediction that by 1895, the whole world would be destroyed, like all of the Earth. Yeah, okay. Every human being dead. 
Wow. Because we wouldn't be able to produce enough food. Dude, they would starve to, to death. Yeah, that we was would that all guy. just starve okay. to death. Yeah. I'm trying to remember which one that guy was. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah Thomas yeah, yeah. Malthus. Yes, 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 yes. And what's insane about that is by 1895, we were in the middle of the Industrial Revolution, where stuff like cars and and you know the uh, the locomotive, you know, and, right. which had been around since you know the the mid 19th century, right. they, they were perfecting the locomotive. Uh, cars were being invented. The steam engine was giving way to the internal combustion engine. Um, there were revolutions in farming and agriculture. The world was prospering on a whole nother level that this guy obviously couldn't see coming. I mean, you know, he was writing in 1798, and it's yeah. it's very difficult to to see the future. You know, yeah. It, and I, that's why I write off most futurists. There's there's actually a group of people, for professionals called futurists, mm-hmm. that predict the future, and 99.999 percent of them are dead wrong about yeah. everything they say. I mean, it's almost impossible. So I write them all off. Yeah, you have to. I, mean, <laughs> I write them all off. Yeah, I don't trust any of them. Right. Uh-huh. Uh, we also went over the environmental concerns, which seems to be driving people insane nowadays. All the environmental concerns, the earth is dying, we're destroying it with CO2. Uh, we went over how the world is, quote, the world is literally a greener place than it was 20 years ago. Yes. And I'm quoting Abby Tabor from the NASA Ames Research Center and Mike Carlwitz uh, from the Earth Observatory. They, they viewed the earth with satellites. And it kept getting greener and greener and greener. And they're like, what the hell is going on? So they actually looked into it. Why is the world getting greener? And they found it's mostly from agriculture. Because we have more people, we have to feed more people. Right. Right? Right. And so we grow more food, mm-hmm. which means more green leaf area coverage on the earth. In fact, it, it amounts to... Uh, let's see. Uh, global green leaf area has increased five percent since the early two thousands, an area equivalent to all the Amazon rainforest. And you got to think about that from the early two thousands. That's from two thousand to twenty eighteen when this story right. was done. So that's mm-hmm. eighteen years, mm-hmm. and we grew enough food to constitute five percent more green leaf area, which is the equivalent of the Amazon rainforest. That's crazy to think about. Yeah. Wow. I mean, think about that right there, wow. you know, yeah. in just 18 years, we grew enough plants to account for 5% of the green leaf coverage, like increasing at 5%, right, right, right. which accounts for the entire Amazon rainforest. Mm-hmm. What the wow. hell? Wow. <laughs> you know, we're on it, baby. Yeah, we're, you know? we're all over it. And we also talked about how uh, Deborah Tabart from the Australian Koala Foundation noted that 85% of the world's forests are now gone and how that's dead wrong. Yes. How that's completely wrong. Uh, it, it was humanprogress.org that ran the numbers on it. Uh, they found that Green Action News had reported something similar. 80% of the Earth's forests had been destroyed. Well, the UN reports that there are 4 billion hectares of forest land worldwide. So do the math. If there are 4 billion hectares worldwide and about 14.8 billion hectares of land, period, 4 billion of which being forests, then if 80% were cut down, then you'd have to have 135% of the Earth's surface covered in forests, and we would have had to cut all that down. And 5.2 billion of those hectares would have had to be on the ocean. You know, so all the grasslands, all the deserts, all the swamps, the North Pole, the South Pole, all the tundras, that all had to be forest, plus 5 billion hectares at sea. 
that we cut down, which is, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. It's an absolutely ridiculous claim. Mm-hmm. So 80% of the forests have not been cut down. In fact, quite the opposite. Uh, humanprogress.org notes uh, that the world's richest regions, such as North America and Europe, are not only increasing their forest area, they have more forest than they did prior to industrialization. So we have more forest now than we did before industrialization in the 19th century. There you go. Come on, man. <laughs> there you Come go. On. You know, so the environmental concerns are insane. Uh, not only that, but the United States has cut its uh, CO2 emissions more than any other developed nation. Any other developed nation. That includes all the nations that signed and ratified the Kyoto Treaty. All the nations that took part in the Paris Accords, right. despite the fact that we backed out of them. Mm-hmm. You know, all of those countries did not cut their emissions as much as the United States. And our economic activity grew so our economic activity grew from, uh, do you believe, 2017 to 2018, 3%. So 3% we grew, which is pretty healthy economic growth. Oh, yeah. You know, pretty he- healthy economic growth. But the emissions were cut. So we have more economic activity, less pollution. Mm-hmm. You know? Right. And this idea that the world is doing, that the developed world is doing nothing to, to curb pollution uh, or to curb ec- ecological damage, which is something, uh, it's a narrative that's coming out of, uh, oh man, some Western European countries, Sweden mm-hmm. and uh, Finland and all that. There's, oh, the developed world is doing nothing to curb pollution. Well, here in the United States, we are. Right. You know, we mm-hmm. cut pollution. It was by half a percent, which um, uh, amounts to millions that's, yeah, of tons of CO2. That um, just shows you how much pollution there is, though. Right. We cut it by half a percent. Right. While still growing economically, it didn't slow our economic growth at all. Right. Uh, so we did a really good job there. Uh, we also looked into violence, mm-hmm. um, especially here in the United States, because we're thought of around the world as like you know the Wild West, oh, like everyone right. walks around with guns just shooting in yeah. the air. You know, we've the got schools unsafe. Yeah, 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 schools unsafe. The streets aren't safe. You're just gonna get shot walking yeah. around. Well, this isn't true. Uh, we looked at the numbers. Uh, the Washington Post found in 2015. Uh, Police shot 94 unarmed individuals in 2016, 51 armed, unarmed individual 2017, 68 unarmed indi- individuals. And in 2018, when they measured, it was 18 unarmed individuals. Now, the thing about that is that th- that was, you know, spun here in the United States as as an epidemic. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the police, it's like they were hunting minorities and gunning them down in the streets. Mm-hmm. And it's like the year where they shot the most was 94 unarmed individuals in 2015. 94. And there are 320 million of us on this planet, or on in this country. Right. I almost said on this planet. There are <laughs> seven and a half billion of us on this planet. Yeah. But 320 million of us in this country. Are you kidding me? And only 94 unarmed right. got shot? And you know what's crazy is I didn't look at the races on that, so it's 94 total. Right. And I do believe it was uh, 24, 25 of them were white, uh-huh. and like 15 or 16 of them were black. So it was, they were uh-huh. shooting more unarmed white people than they were shooting unarmed black people. Right. You know, so right. this the so-called epidemic is just simply not true. No. Um, no. There, there was also uh, the Brennan, the Brennan Institute for Justice, I do believe. Uh, I didn't, I don't think I got the card out. Um, no, I didn't. Uh, but they found that... Uh, they found that essentially what, what the, there was a – oh, yeah, that's right. They measured gun violence. Mm-hmm. 
So, or no, no crime. It was a violent crime overall. And okay. They found it was both them and the Pew Research Institute found that uh, violent crime has dropped dramatically over fifty percent uh, from when they started measuring this. It when crime hit its peak in the early nineties, right? So, right. So from the nineties to now, we have an over fifty percent drop in violent crime, and it was somewhere around forty-eight or forty-nine percent drop in. Uh, Property crime. Right. So violent crime and property crime have dropped almost uh, in violent crimes case over half and property crimes case case almost half. So that's that's huge. Like half the crime Amazing. we had in the 90s, which is the exact opposite of the prediction of the 90s and, and the mid 80s. If you remember watching movies in the 80s and 90s, I did. Uh, they depicted the future, uh, you know, like 97 to 2000 as like a war in the streets yeah. between police officers and gangs and cartels. If you remember, that's the premise of RoboCop, mm-hmm. which is one of my favorite movies. Yes, by the way. I love RoboCop. Um, it was also the premise of the second Predator movie. Remember that? I do. How the movie started out, it was in 1997. Yeah. And it was just like open warfare uh-huh. between the cops and, and, the, they really thought, and the gangsters. But they really had that mindset. They really thought that's what it was going to be. Yeah. They oh, really yeah. They really did. They thought it was going to be like, I mean, like RPGs in the streets, right, you know, right. automatic weapons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Explosions going off like like an action movie, you know. Right. And they really thought that was going to go down. It was crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course it didn't. It didn't. Crime is, in fact, precipitously dropping. Mm-hmm. Precipitously. It's moving downward. Um, on top of that, we addressed, oh, yeah, the workplace being much safer. Yeah. Uh, we addressed how... It was oh this one I did I do have <laughs> we addressed how it was found uh, that in 1913 61 U.S. workers out of 100,000 died in work-related accidents. Uh, that number fell to 3.2 per 100,000 in 2015. That's a 95 percent reduction. People used to die all the time just doing their jobs, mm. you know, just doing everyday jobs, and now that isn't happening. Not near as much. I mean, there are still people that die on the job, right? And they are. Um, Mostly men. Women almost never die on the job. That's, that's weird to think Yeah, about. mostly men die on the job. Huh. And it's because we take all the dangerous jobs. The risks. Yeah, we, yeah, we go out in the oil field. We climb that tall ladder. Yeah, and, yeah, 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 we climb that tall ladder. That was another thing we discussed. <laughs> that reminded me of the availability heuristics about how people think the world's getting worse because of availability uh-huh. heuristics. Um, and the example we give was tornadoes. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Which, you know, I got that from Steven Pinker. That's the, the example he uses about how tornadoes are thought of universally as immensely dangerous. And they are. Mm-hmm. But more people fall off of ladders and die than are killed by tornadoes right. every year. Right. You know, mm-hmm. so it's like, it's like, which one's more dangerous, tornadoes or ladders? Well, most people would say tornadoes, tornadoes right? right? But ladders kill more people. And mm-hmm. I wouldn't even say it's ladders that kill people. It's people not using ladders correctly, correctly. Yeah. yeah you know probably being drunk yeah some, yeah, yeah. So i'm sure using ladders in a in a very irresponsible manner well they probably shouldn't be in the first place right exactly yeah um so yeah it, it, it's crazy because like a tornado is a is psychologically available it's jarring you know it's one of those things that you think of it it's in the forefront of your mind because it is big it's loud it's scary it destroys a lot all at once mm-hmm. so it's in your mind as like this immensely dangerous thing but ladders aren't because they just sit there and they're quiet. Right. You know, the right. silent killer. Mm-hmm. You know? Right. <laughs> right. It's true, though. You don't think of it. I mean, it was same, it's the same with uh, nuclear power. You know, with nuclear power, more people fall off of roofs and die installing solar panels. 
mm-hmm. than have died in the entire history of nuclear power. And what's really crazy about nuclear power is, you know, people point to Fukushima. Well, Fukushima, Fukushima, it's so dangerous. Well, yeah, Fukushima was, it was really insane, okay? So they built, uh, oh, Japan built a nuclear reactor, like, damn near on a fault line in a tsunami zone. So it's like, what'd you think was going to happen? But the thing is, is yeah, that disaster happened. And guess how many people died from the, from nuclear radiation? Zero. Exactly. <laughs> Zero. Wow. Now people did die evacuated. Okay. Oh, yeah. how crazy is that? Yeah. Like the nuclear reactor didn't kill anybody. The evacuation. But the, the evacuation, evacuation did. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. interesting. I mean, it's, you know, it's tragic. I'm not trying to make fun of it, but yeah, at but... the same time, you got to think about this, like. Nuclear power is so immensely safe, but yeah. we, we act like it's crazy dangerous yeah. because of availability heuristics. Mm-hmm. It's in the forefront of our mind. It's nuclear power. It's, mm-hmm. you know, we made bombs with it before we powered things with it. Right. People think of those A-bombs. They don't think of a nuclear power plant as something that's safe because of atomic bombs and because of stuff or hydrogen bombs and because of stuff like Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, um, Fukushima, mm-hmm. they think that that's just a norm, a regular. And right. it's like there are more days where nuclear power plants don't melt down mm-hmm. than there are days where they do. Right. You know, yeah. <laughs> and it's wow. like people don't think about that. Nope. Um, well, what else did we go over uh, in that? I think that's that's most of it. The crime, population growth, um, right? Yeah, and uh, the environmental concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, millennials stressing out oh, the 22 oh, to 37 yes. year olds oh my god I think I did put that was one out hold on let me find that yep I sure did I think it was, <laughs> was, it, was it 16 reasons right yeah 16 reasons yeah. and this was put out by the blaze uh, March 19th 2019 millennials say life today is more stressful than ever before here are the 16 reasons and the subtitle is so great <laughs> slow wi-fi and low phone batteries have millennials all stressed out <laughs> and it's i mean i'm deadly serious about this it's absolutely ridiculous more than half of american millennials 58 percent, say life today is more stressful than ever before and a third believe their lives are more stressful than the average person's life and why why They gave 16 reasons why. Losing your wallet or credit card, arguing with partner, commute or traffic delays, losing phone, arriving to work late, slow Wi-Fi, phone battery dying, forgetting your password, credit card fraud, forgetting phone charger, losing or misplacing keys, paying bills. Oh my God, God forbid. The big boogeyman, paying bills, job interviews, phone screen breaking, credit card bills, check engine light coming on. Of those 16 things, like, it was, it's like, what is it, like, 13 of them are your fault? Yeah, 14 to 16, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, 13, yeah, yeah, 13. Yeah, 13, yeah. 14 of them, it's stuff yeah. that you, like, you could avoid if you just weren't so damn irresponsible, yeah. you know? And it's it's unbelievable to me. These are the reasons they're listing off, not, like, you know, cholera, yeah, <laughs> you know? I'm, I mean, even if you can't avoid them, that's or, no reason to stress. Or, like, starvation, or uh, world war. You know, or uh, nuclear racial, conflagration, yeah, yeah uh, racial inequality, yeah. environmental concerns. None of that hit the list. What did hit the list was all this flippant BS 
you know, this like, oh, it's so stressful because my phone broke. It's so stressful because <laughs> I got to go to a job interview. A job oh, interview. I can't remember a password that I've been putting in for six years. Yeah, yeah. Straight. I can't like, remember my phone. <laughs> it's what? insane to me. Yeah. And, and so that, 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 those are the reasons why they say the world is more stressful now than ever before. And it's like, just read a damn book. How about that? Read a history book about how stressful life used to be. Mm -hmm. Try living in the Civil War era, you know, where not only was America at war with itself, 600,000 men died in the war. Most of them died from disease, actually. Mm -hmm. And you had battles like Cold Water, I do believe was the name of the battle, Cold Water. Um, it was either that or Cold Creek, but I'm pretty sure it's Cold Water, where 7,000 men died in seven minutes. Wow. Seven minutes flat. 7,000 mm. dead. Just like that. Yeah. And they and back then, they didn't like sleep in tents. The soldiers didn't sleep in tents. They had their coat. They would put their coat over themselves and go to sleep on the ground. They would eat uh, old hardtack, which... It, just do some reading on what hardtack hard is. is. I'll go check that out. It's like a biscuit, but really hard. It's made to last for a long time, but it had weevils in it, like little wheat-eating bugs. Uh, uh. And you would take. It's funny they talk if you read if you read letters from the Civil War era, they would take the the uh, hardtack and they would break it open, and, or they break it into pieces and crumble it up and put it in their coffee. And they would be like, all the weevils would come to the top, all the beetles that were in there, and you'd just skim the beetles off the top and then drink your coffee with the hardtack in it. You didn't even have food you could chew. Like, the hardtack was too hard to eat by itself, so you broke it up and put it in coffee and drank it. And they were, if you read these letters, they're happy. Like, they're not writing home about how, like, how dismal and terrible life is. Right. They're writing home about the great adventure that they're having and how happy they are to, to be embarking on such an adventure. Yeah. And be alive. Right. I can write this letter. Yeah, I can. Yeah, well, and, and, and how happy they are to fight for their country, either yeah. side, the Confederacy or the Union. Yeah. You know, about yeah. how they have this grand opportunity now to fight for their country mm -hmm. um, and, and show the world that they're worth something, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, it, and it's insane. If you were to put people our age in that kind of situation, like they wouldn't make it. No, they wouldn't make it. If phone screens breaking and job interviews are what make your or what makes your life super stressful, try fighting a civil damn war. Oh, you know, try yeah. dealing with cholera or the first influenza outbreaks in uh, 1916, 1917. You know, try dealing with something like that. Try dealing with a world war. Try dealing with something like um, like a. Uh, the uh, even the Cold War, where everyone thought that any second the nuclear bombs were coming and it was just going to wipe everything out immediately, you know, yeah. try dealing yeah. with that. Stressed out twenty four seven. You wouldn't literally. be able to sleep, you yeah. know, and that's still kind of a threat, but that's been such a threat for so long. We're deadened. Yeah, we're deadened to it, you know. So as we went over the metrics, like it's just show it's just shows more and more like the, the world's getting better and that people's negative outlook on life and negative outlook on um on the modern world is just dead wrong mm -hmm. and it's based in in mostly nihilism right you know right right and that was one of the things we kind of talked about where the negativity comes from and that's that's what we wanted to expand on in episode 1.2 is where is the negativity coming from why is it happening and how can we combat it you know, I mean, putting out the facts is, is part one, I would say, like, that's that's a pretty good way to combat such a such a thing is to put out the facts. Right. You know, right. like and, and Stephen Pinker's book, uh, 
enlightenment now which mm-hmm. you need to pick up and read yes that's a really good way like you read this book and you've got a negative outlook on life mm-hmm. if you read this book and you still have a negative outlook on life like you read it wrong you need to read it again you need to read it again you need to read it again you have a negative outlook for no reason for sure uh and so so getting the facts out there is is a big part of it and if you want to know the the facts more pertinently if you want to know um all of the stuff that we just kind of hashed over. Go back to episode one. It's on YouTube. Yes. Uh, you can find it under Corpus Christi Coastal Bent. You just type in Corpus Christi Coastal Bent into YouTube, and we pop up. We're the very first. Pretty uh, easy. We're also on Anchor. So anchor.fm slash triple C bent. Uh, that's CCC bent. You know, uh, anchor.fm CC or slash CCC bent. Uh, that's the audio version. We're also on a bunch of different other platforms, and when I get everything set up on those platforms, I'll advertise them. I mean, right now, all, from Anchor, you can get to us on Spotify. You can get to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and a litany of other uh, platforms. But I don't really have any of those platforms like set up. Like we're up yeah, there, yeah. but you know, I don't. And I'm yeah. working on setting we'll all there. of that up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's a it's a work in progress. Oh yeah, it's definitely a work in progress. I mean, I'm just learning how to do all this stuff, yeah. like all the video and the audio and Living running the y'all. equipment. <laughs> yeah, and like you know, getting everything set up online and and having like you know pages set up on on the different platforms. Like I'm just learning all this shit mm-hmm. as I go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, on the fly. Right, exactly on the fly. Hmm. Um, and, and then disseminating the the facts, I think, is a uh, is something. That can be done with uh, stuff like humanprogress.org. Follow humanprogress.org on Facebook, on Instagram. That's a really great institution that tells you about how things are progressing in the human world, you know, how things are getting better. Uh, humanprogress.org, the Cato Institute is another, is another good one to follow. Um, they're always putting out numbers, you know, as to how the world's getting better, uh, crime stats. Uh, the worker fatality stats and all that they're putting it all all the time showing people like hey the world's getting better like quit whining so much right you know so the cato institute is a really good one to follow uh but beyond putting out the facts i think we also need to analyze where nihilism comes from because i think a lot of this a lot of people's negative outlook on life it's nihilism right the belief in nothing and nihilism is touched on quite a few times throughout history, most notably in the late 19th century, uh, right before the rise of the the Soviet Union um, and many of the atheistic states that plunged the world into war and turmoil uh, from the beginning of the 20th century to damn near the end of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there there were a couple guys that commented on nihilism, uh, one of them being Nietzsche, and I've got so many notes over here. I just, I got to find the right ones. <laughs> uh, okay, so Nietzsche talked about nihilism. And uh, Dr. Jordan B. Peterson uh, quoted him in his uh, TV Ontario program on his book, Map, Maps of Meaning. Mm-hmm. And I, I really like this Nietzsche quote about nihilism. Uh, and it kind of encapsulates why nihilism came about at the end of the 19th century. Um Of what is great, one must be silent or speak with greatness. With greatness, that means cynically, and with innocence, what I relate is the history of the next two centuries. I describe what is coming, what can no longer come differently, the advent of nihilism, the belief in nothing. 
Our whole European country is moving for some time now with a tortured tension that is growing from decade to decade as towards a catastrophe. Restlessly, violently, headlong, like a river that wants to reach the end, but no longer reflects. It's afraid to reflect. He that speaks here has conversely done nothing so far but to reflect as a philosopher in solitary by instinct who has found his advantage in standing aside, outside. So what he was saying there is, essentially, I can see all of this because I'm not in it. I'm okay. standing outside of it, watching you become nihilistic. Watching it happen. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, and you can't see it because you're in it subjectively. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, he goes on and says, why has the advent of nihilism become necessary? Because the values we've had hitherto thus draw their final consequence. Because nihilism represents the ultimate logical conclusion of our great values and ideals. Because we must experience nihilism before we can find out the value these values really had. We require at some time new values. Nihilism stands at the door. Whence comes this uncanniest of all guests? Now, what he was saying there, it's, it's you know, not, Nietzsche was... Nietzsche was uh, a very difficult guy to comprehend. Really, the way he wrote, the way he thought, really hard. So let's break some of this down. He says, why, he said, why has the advent of nihilism become necessary? Because the values we've had hitherto thus draw their final consequence. Because nihilism represents the ultimate logical conclusion of our great values and ideals. I think what he was talking about there was the insistence on science being the last and final word on all things and the the uh the the taking of a religious thought and throwing it out the window so religious thought is just stupid and flippant and ridiculous Mm -hmm. but science has the the final word on everything and what he's saying is look if you look at everything from an objective standpoint Mm -hmm. uh from a materialistic scientific standpoint then it it breeds nihilism You know, if if the idea that the whole universe is nothing but a bunch of dead material in a dead void uh, moving in a random pattern with absolutely no aim that is eventually all going to die a heat death, well, of course you're going to breed a bunch of people that just think that the whole world's worthless and useless and that all their actions in it are worthless and useless. I think that that was part of what he was talking about. And he says, because we must experience nihilism before we can find out the value these values really had. So in order to to uh, give us a good idea as to what value our values had, it has to be shown in juxtaposition to something that is the opposite of it. So if our values have any value, then when nihilism shows up, the values will refute the nihilism. If not and nihilism wins, then your values didn't have much yeah. value, did they? Right. You know? So it's kind of like a test. Nihilism shows up whenever your values need to be tested. When, when, uh, when the values have come to a point where they're, they're established, they're instantiated, and they need to be tested. And so nihilism shows up, rears its ugly head, and the values are tested against nihilism. And if nihilism wins, your values weren't worth much. Mm-hmm. If the belief in nothing can beat your values, then your values weren't right. worth much at all. Yeah. You know? And also, it's one of those things that I think he, he was one of those people that, that believed that, you know, we've had it so good for so long. And this is the late 19th century. Things really weren't that good. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, but to him, they were, mm-hmm. you know? 
and even now, like, I mean, we say, you know, now things are great, you know, but people a hundred years from now are going to be like, man, they thought they had it good. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. It, it, that yeah. we had it so good for so long that in order to, to know that we have it so good, mm -hmm. we have to experience what it's like to not have it so good. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I talked about this uh, on the Roll the Dice podcast with Jeremy Wells uh -huh. and uh, Casey about how there are consequences for not doing anything, for not uh, adopting responsibility, not being active, mm -hmm. um, not forthrightly facing the unknown um, and, and constantly updating what you know. That those consequences, and I'm saying like biological consequences, it's nihilism and anxiety and uh, depression. That your brain, your body quite literally punishes you when you don't do anything of, uh, of merit. Mm -hmm. You know, when you don't work, when you don't adopt responsibility, when you don't do what you're supposed to be doing as a human being. Right. It punishes you with, uh, with uh, neurochemicals that spiral you downward into anxiety and depression and nihilism mm -hmm. uh, and so it's one of those things that if you got it real good and you don't have to do anything right then your body is going to start punishing you yeah you know so that you'll go out and do something mm -hmm. that juxtaposition that anxiety that you feel from sitting around doing nothing mm -hmm. that's that's a motivator yeah. You know, to yeah. get up and do something, damn it. Because when the second you do something, even something little, you go and you know, go for a run or something like all of a sudden, all that anxiety, all that nihilism, all that depression starts going away. It starts melting away mm -hmm. uh, yeah. simply because you just got up and did something mm -hmm. that wasn't like watching, you know, binge watching a TV show or, you know, yeah. cooking a hot pocket. Yeah. But then, like you said, <laughs> you know? you, but then you have those people, too, that they, they do good, 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 good. Everything's good. And that one little bad thing that happens, that's it. Right. That's it. It's like, right. you know, 50 Cent as a quote. Uh, Roy wouldn't feel so good if it wasn't for pain. The sun wouldn't feel so good if it wasn't for rain. Makes yeah. sense. I mean, yeah. It's true. You yeah, have to that, go through it. It's that juxtaposition. And that's mm -hmm. what I think nihilism is. is mm -hmm. Like, we, we can't really know how good we got it until right. nihilism rears its ugly head and right. shows us. Right. You know? Yep. And it's crazy that that quote you just, uh, you just said there, Peterson said something very similar. Mm -hmm. He says, your beliefs are undermined once. What's the consequence of that? Well, one consequence is that the belief is undermined. The other consequence is more metaphysical, which is fooled once, you no longer have the belief. But maybe it's even worse than that because human beings can generalize. Fooled once and you no longer have any belief in belief. Wow. Yeah. Damn. You see, and that's yeah. what you were saying there. Those people right. they get undermined and then they just give up that's on it. everything. That's and over. that's what he's talking about there. That yeah. kind of nihilism when your beliefs are undermined. And he's talking very generally. He doesn't mean like just religious belief or something. He just means right. belief in, in, in general. In general, right. Yeah. You, like you thought you could beat this guy on the hundred yard dash and he ends up smoking your ass. Yeah. And it's like, well, now your, your belief is undermined. Right. And some people just like give up on running forever because mm -hmm. they got beat once. Yep. <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, Ronda Rousey. UFC, Ronda Rousey. She yeah. was undefeated for eight years. Lost one fight. Never heard from her again. Yeah. Went into depression. Went in this. She was like, we're like, what? It's just a, what? Yeah. That's just a fight. And she was done for. Yeah, that was it. Her, yeah. her mind was defeated. Right. That's it. Yeah, and it, it's crazy how that works now. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's bounced back a, a bit. Yeah. But, I mean, you, you know. Well, she's I, in wrestling now. She's in WWE yeah. now. She quit UFC altogether. Yeah, she yeah. did. After she did. That. Yeah, because yeah, her beliefs got undermined. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, that was crazy that that just coincided. Like, we didn't plan that, folks. Yeah, we did not. <laughs> <laughs> we did not plan that. Not at all. Uh, and so this nihilism that shows up either as a test or as the natural result of relying, leaning on science real hard, uh, I, I think it's manifesting itself in our modern world with like in spades, like with a vengeance, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> like it's manifesting itself hard. You can see it all over social media, like social media is so unbelievably negative. And the, the people on social media that are the most negative seem to get the most attention. Oh, know? yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. The more you whine and bitch and moan and complain, the more people like like your page and follow you. And For some reason it's yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. And then on top of that, I mean, you've got the news media, which we talked about in the last uh, episode, that's mm-hmm. just constantly putting out negative material. That's all they put out yeah. They almost never put out anything positive. It's all the world's ending, you know. Yeah. It's uh, they never they never do stuff like, uh, and I think I said this in the last episode. They never do stuff like we're coming to you from a country that's been at peace for forty years. <laughs> no, they always come to you from a country that's been at war, you know, or there's a, a pestilence or some kind of terrible anything yeah. something happening. Even our local you know, news, there's a gentleman downtown actually who passed away named Jay Paul. Uh-huh. Um, You've been downtown. You've probably ran into him a couple times. Probably. Uh, he passed away about a month ago. He was an old vet. Didn't have any family here. Uh, they ended up, man, they ended up throwing together, uh, the, uh, the downtown family ended up um, actually throwing a funeral for, for him, actually. It was really cool. Michael Gagaz. Michael Gagaz. Uh, just shout out to him. Um, actually... He helped get together a bunch of old vets, old family, old downtown people, and throw a funeral for him. And it was on the news. Point being, you know what the opening, the opening story was that day? It was a robbery. Really? That no one even died from. Really? No one even died from. And the second story was that. Why? Why? That just that does that just shows you right there. Man. Yeah. Like, well, that it's, shows it's like right I there. said in the last episode. If it bleeds, it leads. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't even a stick up. It was nothing. Not even gun involved. And there was no stabbing. It was right. Literally, he, he picked the door and tried to steal the TV. I think I don't know. It was a crackhead. <laughs> that was but the lead story. That that was the lead and, story for and the that day. That was the second story. And the and the funeral, the yeah. uplifting funeral yeah. story, was not the lead story. No. No, you can't. You can't open up with something nice. You got to open yeah. up with somebody getting robbed. Yeah, you know, like yeah. how ridiculous. But yeah, the the news media is doing so because they're in their death throes. They're mm-hmm. trying to to get more ratings. They're trying to stay alive. Right. Um. And it's just not working. I don't. I don't think it's working no, at all. It's not. Um. I mean, I think it's working to an extent. The people that are nihilistic, of of course, are are cottoning, cottoning on to the negative news media. Right. You know, because they, it validates their worldview. Their worldview is that the world is a terrible place, mm-hmm. and so the media validates that worldview. But it's not an accurate worldview, not at all. No. You know, not at all accurate. No. Um, and so this this negativity, this nihilism, I think a lot of it. I think well. Let's just go ahead. Let's let's try to explore, investigate where it's all coming from, you know. And uh, I've got a couple really good quotes from uh, Dr. Jordan B. Peterson, um, and a, and a couple really good stories that I think can really explain where nihilism is coming from in our modern age and how we can combat it, like why these people are so negative and how we can turn them around. Mm-hmm. You know, well, of course, at the end of the day, only they can turn themselves around. 
But right. we can give them a lot of really good reasons as to why they need to turn themselves around, mm-hmm. you know? All right. Um, so I want to start with, uh, I want to start with a quote, if I can grab it. Here we go. Mm-hmm. I'm going to start with a quote from uh, Marion L. Tupi of uh, humanprogress.org. Marion L. Tupi says, we are the luckiest generation that has ever lived. On average, we are longer living, richer, healthier, more educated, safer, and even happier than any other people who have ever lived. Is it too much to ask that we start behaving in a manner that is commensurate with our good fortune? Mm. I think that's a that's a very powerful quote that if you you know like if you want to meditate on something that's one of the things you need to meditate on like we have it so good and because we have it so good we have a responsibility mm-hmm. to to not only our community of the people around us but to the to the very structure of reality itself mm-hmm. to act in such a way that is commensurate with our good fortune uh our good fortune means that it's it's like okay when you if, if ever you become rich and a lot of people especially in america do this they start giving more to charity after they get rich mm-hmm. and, and i know that's that's not a uh, that's not a, a popular thing like people don't say oh no rich people uh, uh, uh. Yeah. it's actually rich people that give more money to charity than any other group it's oh, yeah. rich religious people Mm-hmm. Give more money to charity than any other group of people, mm-hmm. uh, and the United States gives more money to charity as a people than any other group of people in the world mm-hmm. because we're some of the richest. Right, right. So, the richer people get, the more of a responsibility to give back. They feel it's like a natural, innate thing mm-hmm. that just kind of bubbles up from inside of them. They know, like, okay, I've got it so good, I need to give back some. Right. And I think that's the, that's the way we need to be acting here in this country, even if you're on the lowest end of, of the uh, income scale here on the United States, you're still living better than like most countries middle class. Right. You know, like yeah. the poor people in this country are living better than most countries middle class people, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And so I think we need to start acting commensurate to that to that level of uh, of prosperity. You know, and I think that's that's definitely a, a part of alleviating the nihilism, the belief in nothing, which nihilism is one of those weird things, because when someone's nihilistic, they don't know they're nihilistic. I mean, maybe they do somewhere deep down, but they if you were to confront them and say, like, hey, bro, you're nihilistic. They're like, No, I believe in stuff like, you know, <laughs> but your behavior tells me otherwise, right. you know. Your behavior tells me otherwise. Your constant negativity. You're always, you know, I mean, we've all worked with the guy that hates being at work. Oh, you know, yeah. Who constantly oh, yeah. complains about work, mm-hmm. constantly complains about his coworkers, tries everything he or she can do to get out of doing extra work or right. even maybe not even extra work, just like stuff that their job entails. Yeah. But I they, mean, they're, they're bare minimum. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. They're bare minimum. They want to just skate by. Yeah. We've all worked with those people. That Those people are nihilistic. Yeah. They're nihilistic. Yeah. Yeah. If I, you're not nihilistic, you adopt as much responsibility at work as humanly possible, mm-hmm. you know, because it's A, it's good for you, mm-hmm. and B, that's how you move up. Right. You know, <laughs> it's if, normal. If the bosses see that you're adopting more responsibility than the rest of your coworkers, they're going to move you up. Yeah. You know, they're not going to want to keep you at the bottom. Right. They want you to be more productive, so they're going to pay you more right. to be more productive. Right. You know, it's best for business. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think acting in a in a way that is commensurate with our good fortune is one good way to combat nihilism. Mm-hmm. Um, and and nihilism is one of those things that's difficult to know that you're in it. I mean, I've been in it before. 
you know, I've, I've been nihilistic before and for years and didn't even realize that that's what I was doing, right. you know, until I started to analyze my behavior. Cause you have to remember what you say, even what you think means nothing. Mm-hmm. What you do, that's what matters. Actions speak truly. Actions right. speak. Actions speak truly. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. And if your actions aren't commensurate with what you are thinking and what you are saying, then you're doing nothing but lying to everyone around you and more importantly, lying to yourself. Mm-hmm. You know? And so that's what I was doing for the longest time is I was extremely nihilistic and I and I would I would lie to myself and I would lie to those around me and, and be like, no, I believe in things. I'm not nihilistic, you know, yada, yada. It's just the world's, the world's got it out for me. You know, I always blamed everyone else or everything else. You know, there was always something that was the problem that wasn't me, you know, right. when the problem was me the whole damn time, you know, it had to be me. Yeah. <laughs> There's, that's the way it's gotta be. It just, right. it just, it's so you, yep. it's you. Mm-hmm. You have to change your attitude. Now, this is this particular kind of nihilism is described in the Bible, right? Okay. Uh, and before before we get to this story, I do want to uh, touch on the the Marcus Aurelius quote. You remember? Oh this yes, one. of course. Yeah, yeah. The Shout s- to Chef Glenn, by the way. Yeah, yeah, Chef Glenn, who uh, put this quote up on the board uh, here at the exchange. At the exchange, there's a chalkboard where he writes all this pertinent. Or Chef Glenn writes all this pertinent information, you know, for the the food that's out that day the soup of the day the ingredients of the salad but he also has a quote of the day and on the quote of the day uh, a couple weeks back there was the soul becomes dyed by the color of its thoughts by marcus aurelius now i do believe it is uh included in marcus aurelius's book meditations marcus aurelius was a roman emperor from 161 a.d to 180 a.d he was a philosopher emperor uh and a damn good one especially i mean compared to other uh, Roman emperors he did right. a pretty damn good job. He was called the the last of the good emperors. Um, his son Commodus, unfortunately, was terrible and <laughs> took over after him. But uh, if you ever if you ever want for wisdom, if you need some wisdom, check out Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. Uh, it's an amazing book, uh, full of wonderful gems, just like that one right there. The soul becomes dyed by the color of its thoughts. And so, w- what he's saying there is that if you're always thinking negatively then it, it seeps into your soul, that negativity. So the constant uh, focus on the negative will turn you into a negative being. And a fade to black. Right. Not just, uh, not just giving you a negative mentality, but it will turn you into a negative being. Your very being, your very soul will become negative. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, that's, that's nihilism. That's what nihilism does. You constantly... Uh, Focus on that which is negative, and that which is negative eventually becomes your very being, eats you alive. Uh, But the story of Cain and Abel is really interesting, Mm -hmm. and it tells us how nihilistic people work, where nihilism comes from, and what the ultimate result of nihilism is. Uh, And this is one of those, like, I can't even believe, like, I talk to 18-year-old kids now, and I'm like, you know, I like the story of Cain and Abel, and they're like, oh. Who's Cain and Abel? It happens a lot more. It happens a lot more nowadays, it seems like. Yeah. Than it did then. They're like, who's Cain and Abel? And you're like, what do you mean, who's Cain and Abel? Yeah. <laughs> you know? like. But it's happening a lot more now. It's happening a lot more nowadays for some reason. Everybody I went to school with when I was 18, every, everyone I went to school when I was four. 
or five, six. They teach it in children's church. One of the first things. Yeah. Know about that. That I, you know what I mean? Yeah. It, well, it's Genesis. Yeah. Right. In in the very beginning. Exactly. The first book of the Bible. Right. It's in Genesis, and it's it's right after it's of course after the creation, and it's after the fall of man. Mm-hmm. Right. And then it's Adam and Eve. They've been ejected from the garden. And we'll cover that later in a different episode. But right mm-hmm. now, we're going to focus on Cain and Abel. And just so people get it clear, Adam and Eve were the first created. Cain and Abel firstborn, correct? Right. Okay. That is absolutely correct. Just making sure so, we're on yeah. the same page. Yeah. Adam and Eve were created. Cain and Abel were the firstborn human beings. So you could think of them as quite literally the first human beings. Right. Okay. Right. Natural human beings. Um so Cain and Abel, there's a connotation that they were perhaps twins, um, but Abel was the younger brother, Cain was the older brother. Uh, I'm just going to go through the story. I wrote the whole thing down. Mm-hmm. So it's Genesis 4 through 16. Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord, and Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock, and the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel, and his offering. So this is this is very important. He not only respected Abel's offering, but he respected Abel. Right. right? Then it also then it goes on, it says, But unto Cain and his offering he had no respect. So the same principle applies. Not only did God not like Cain's sacrifice, mm-hmm. he didn't like Cain. Mm-hmm. Right? Just in general. In general, exactly. And and It goes on, it says, And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance falling? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? If thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt shalt rule over him. Now this is this was really confusing to me, that particular part that's uh, Genesis 4, 6. Mm Mm-hmm. So I went through BibleHub.com and found some commentaries on that particular Genesis four Genesis four six uh, to maybe clear some of that up because that was that was kind of confusing to me. Mm-hmm. So it says in there that uh, it says that and Cain was very wroth uh, and his countenance fell. So his countenance fell mean like he moped, like he just kind of looked at the ground and looked very sad, you know, and oh woe is me. Kind of thing, and it wroth means, of course, angry. Right. Um, and the Lord said unto Cain, Why, why art thou wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt shall thou not be accepted? If thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. So again, very confusing for me. So I looked up Ellicott's commentary uh, for English readers on Genesis four seven, and that's on BibleHub.com. So you can go to BiblehUb. Look up Genesis 4. Uh, oh, I, sa- I kept on saying 4 6. It's 4 7. 4 7. Ah. Got it. Yeah, <laughs> it's 4 7. Um, so, Ellicott's commentary for English readers um, it's essentially like someone who reads Hebrew mm-hmm. translating this out. Mm-hmm. All right, and they gave uh, an interpretation of uh, Genesis 4 7 that I think clears it up pretty good. So, instead then of thy present, and this is God talking to Cain. Instead then of thy present gloomy, despondent mood in which thou goest about with downcast look, thou shalt lift up thy ha- thy head and have peace and good temper beaming in thy eyes as the result of a quiet conscience. That's the first part. 
right? Mm-hmm. That, uh, you know, why, why are thou wroth? You know, why has thy countenance fallen? That's essentially what he's telling him is like, wh- why are you being so sad? Right. Look up, be happy. You got nothing to be sad about. Mm-hmm. You know, sure, things aren't going your way, but it's not the end of the world. Right. Right. And then the second part, if thou doest not well, sin croucheth at the door that is lies dangerously near thee and puts thee in peril. Beware, therefore, and stand on thy guard, and then his desire shall be unto thee, and thou shalt rule over him, saying, like, so sin lieth at the door, but you can beat it. It's not, it's not, this isn't a done deal. It's not a foregone conclusion. Mm -hmm. You can still win this fight, Right. right? At present thou art vexed and envious because thy younger brother is rich and prosperous while thy tillage yields thee scanty returns. Do well and divine blessing will rest on thee and thou wilt recover thy rights of primogenitor and thy brother will look unto thee in loving obedience. Mm -hmm. Right? So what God was telling him essentially was like, buck up, all right? The only reason you feel bad is because you want to feel bad, right? right? Things aren't going your way. It's okay. That sucks. Mm-hmm. But you don't have to be a bitch about it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? You can yeah. grow the hell up yeah. and, and start, you know, start planning to make the future better. Right. Instead of just acting like just the whole world is over. Yeah. And I just, uh, it's so terrible. I don't know what to do. <laughs> and I hate my brother and it's all his fault. And that's, the world. Again, yeah. that's that Cain mentality. Uh-huh. That Cain mentality is that Abel was the reason Cain was doing so badly. Abel stole it from Cain, right? Right. That's the Cain mentality. It isn't, Cain wasn't like, well, it's my fault, you know, maybe I should go to Abel and ask him how how he's doing so well. No, instead, he blamed his brother Abel because Abel was successful. And we see this, man, in modern society, and not just modern society, we see it throughout the history of mankind. That's why this is one of the first damn stories in the Bible, Mm -hmm. because it describes a continual cyclical pattern of behavior that human beings do regularly. Mm -hmm. When we have someone that is successful, successful near us and we're not as successful as them what we end up doing is blaming the successful person for our ability or for our inability to be successful mm-hmm. and it's wrong mm-hmm. wrong wrong flat earth wrong <laughs> you know instead it's, of working hard to get there too or know? even just asking the person who's being successful instead of getting all mad at yeah. them ask them how are you so damn successful teach me your way mm-hmm. i know what that guy probably will Right? Because he's successful for a reason. A reason. That's right. He learned from somebody else. He took the game from somebody else. And usually, pretty nine times out of ten, he's probably going to be willing to teach that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, And, and the story, uh, also that, that part, the sin lieth at the door part, yeah. where there's another interpretation of that. And I didn't write the whole thing down, but I remembered it. Uh, the, the word sin mm-hmm. in that story it's the same word used for sin offering. So get this. If you know anything about ancient Jewish tradition, um, there was something called a sin offering. It's where we get the term scapegoat from. So if you committed sins, then you gave a sacrifice, a sin offering to wash yourself clean of the sin. Well, the sin offering was usually a goat. And, uh, you know, it was like most offerings. You kill it and burn it and yada, yada. Smoke, yeah. So this other interpretation where it says right there, sin lieth at the door, it can also mean, and I think it does mean both at the same time, a sin offering lieth at the door, meaning you screwed up having this terrible attitude, 
towards your uh, towards your inability to be successful and towards your successful brother. But the means to get over it is right there at the door. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's right there. All you got to do is open, open the door it. and go through the ritual. Now, God didn't mean that like quite literally. Like, yeah. hey, I've got a sin offering at your doorstep. Just go kill that animal and burn it up. Yeah, and, get no, he, what he was saying was that the solution is simple. Mm-hmm. Just change your damn attitude. Mm-hmm. Repent for the sin, which the sin was... And, and repentance is something that most people don't get either because repentance isn't just like, okay, I'm sorry. See you later. Yeah. Repentance is not only it, it's, it has nothing to do with feeling bad about the fact no. that you sin. No, it's about making a commitment to not do it yes. anymore. It's like we talked about, uh, we talked about this before. I don't know, I think it was on last show where people will, uh, they'll go and be like, okay, well, you know, I'm going to do this. And then I'll just go, I'll just go say sorry to God later. And then I'll probably do right. it again next week. Oh, no, no, no. You got to commit yourself. It, it actually, it's got a lot to do. You can put it hand in hand with the sacrifice. You got to make the sacrifice not to do that again, whatever you're, you're That's doing. right. That's, yes. So it goes hand in hand. Yes. And the idea of sacrifice and that sacrifice is a very complex idea, but that that's what God was telling him in, in this story is that he's telling him like, look, the, the solution is simple. You just sacrifice the bad attitude mm-hmm. and you're good to go. You know, yeah. if thou doest that's well, shall, uh, was it? If, if thou doest well, shall not, uh, shall, shall thou not be accepted. It's a King James, you know? isn't it? Yes. Okay. If thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. So, you know, he's saying, and he's saying, if thou doest not well, right? He's saying, like, like if you don't do well and you've got a bad attitude, the solution is right there at the door. It's so simple. Okay. Just change your damn attitude. Mm-hmm. You know, that's all he's telling him. Mm-hmm. And the reason you're not doing well is because your attitude is wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going about life mad about the fact that you have to sacrifice. That was Cain's problem. Mm-hmm. He was mad about the fact that he had to sacrifice at all. Mm-hmm. Right. And of course, mad that Abel's sacrifices were, were garnering God's respect. Right. right. And so, and again, we've met all those people. We've worked with those people that they hate the fact that they have to work to make, to make ends meet. They hate the fact that they have to pay bills. That was one of the 16 reasons why millennials are all stressed out. They got to pay bills. Well, guess what paying bills is? It's a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice you have to make. You Mm -hmm. have to sacrifice your time and your convenience now to make money for later so that you can pay your bills. And you pay your bills with money that you could be spending on getting drunk or going to the theme park, going to buck days here, going to the strip (laughs) club. Whatever. You could be using that money to to relax or to have fun but no you sacrifice that money mm-hmm. to keep the lights on you mm-hmm. sacrifice it to the to the structure of reality itself mm-hmm. you know if you could think of god as the structure of reality you don't pay the bills all your stuff gets cut off mm-hmm. that's the way it works yep. right and if you're mad about the fact that you have to work to pay bills then your attitude <laughs> is all wrong that's it's sad. all <laughs> wrong that, yeah it's sad. <laughs> it's sad yes it's very sad and uh, we'll continue with the story. And unto thee shall be uh, his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel, his brother. And it came to pass, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against his brother and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, I don't know where my brother is. What am I supposed to be keeping an eye on him? Yeah. You know, he's a grown ass adult, right? Yeah. He can take care of himself. 
And uh, let's see. And and he said, "What hast thou done?" And this is God. What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from under the ground, and now thou art cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength, and a fugitive and a vagabond shall thou be in the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Now this always happens with nihilistic people when the negative consequences of their nihilistic behavior come to bear they say i can't bear it it's too much Mm -hmm. it's just too hard (laughs) well you did it Mm -hmm. you know you did it and that's exactly what kane's saying here and he goes even further kane oh my god this is it so encapsulates the the nihilistic personality so perfectly here um he says, uh, and it shall be henceforth the yield unto your strength, the fugitive and a vagabond shall be on the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Be and this is Cain here. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face I be or, uh, shall I be hid, and I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that every one that findeth me shall slay me. Notice what Cain said there. He said, And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day. God God wasn't doing anything to Cain. Cain had done it all to himself. Mm -hmm. Him being driven out was the natural consequence of being a murderer. You know? It it wasn't that God, he says, you know, God, you drove me out. Mm -hmm. No. You drove you out yeah. because you killed your brother. Had you not killed your brother, you wouldn't be driven out, mm-hmm. you know, and you wouldn't be a vagabond and a wanderer and a wanderer and everyone wouldn't want to kill you. You know, now they want to kill you because you killed Abel, the guy everybody liked. Mm-hmm. And instead of going to Abel and asking him, hey, brother, how are you so damn successful? How can I be successful like you? You rose up and you killed him. Mm-hmm. Right. Which, again, is the natural consequence of nihilism. Whenever you get into that nihilistic worldview. Right. You begin to have you begin to harbor murderous thoughts. Right. You want to kill those that are more successful than you. And I don't mean just like literally like physically kill them, but you want to destroy their happiness. You want to destroy their success. You want to destroy every single thing about them that you possibly can. Mm-hmm. All right. That's the nihilistic mindset. And we saw this in the Soviet Union uh, in the early 20th century, where w- the Soviet Union, when they first were uh, rising to power, uh, they would go to the bars. Right. Mm-hmm. They would go to the brothels. They would go to all the places where all the bitter, angry, nihilistic people hung out. Right. right? And they told them, all those damn rich people, they all got those riches because they stole them from you. Right? right? That's what they told the poor people. They told the poor people, they, those rich people are only rich because they stole it from you. Mm. And in fact, now it's totally legal for you to go steal it back. It's not only legal. But it's it's moral. It's your moral duty to do so. It's your moral duty to go steal it back. Damn. And of course, that's what they did. You had the Kulaks uh, in the uh, early 20s. Mm-hmm. They were just recently freed slaves. Essentially, they were serfs. Mm-hmm. And some of them were pretty damn good at farming. And they they got good at it. And they, they had some pretty good crops. And they had like a little brick house, maybe a one-bedroom brick house, a some livestock, uh, maybe a wagon and some horses. And th- that's what the Russians considered rich, that that was a rich person, right? right? And they told them, 
you go take back everything those damn rich people stole from you. And if I, let's see, I have... got it somewhere hold on <laughs> oh ah here it is right here uh no no this isn't it damn it i got all my cards like spread out everywhere <laughs> i tried to put them in order and then like it doesn't work that way no no it doesn't it doesn't oh i'm I was holding it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I was holding go. it the whole damn time. There we go. I was like, uh, you have to be there. You just talked to me. Yeah, them. yeah. Okay. And so this Kane perspective that the uh, Russians adopted, this Kane mentality that the Russians adopted at that time, uh, telling the rich people or telling the poor people that the rich people stole it from them and they need to go steal it back. Peterson talks about this uh, in his TV Ontario presentation he did for his book uh, Maps of Meaning. Um, and I love this quote that I wrote down from him. But then you say, say you adopt this perspective, right? And and it's this vengeful desire to wreak havoc that extends beyond other individuals, beyond society, even to the structure of experience as such. And then you think, what's the best mask for that? You think, well, the most efficient way to do terrible things is to mask them with the highest order of morality. And that's precisely what the totalitarian does. So that the way he gets to so that this way he gets to have his cake and eat it too. He's perfectly well protected from the apprehension of the world because his belief system is complete. Plus, his underground motivation, which is this constant desire for revenge, can find its expression within the totalitarian structure and remain invisible even to himself. So you, so he can say to himself, well, the reason I threw all those farmers out of their house in 1920 and stole their soup and their food and their grandmother's blankets and everything that they worked to own was because I was building the socialist paradise. And it was a good thing for me to go into that, into that house and not a bad thing. And as long as he believes that or acts as if he believes that, he can look into the mirror without screaming. And there's no recognition whatsoever of precisely the sort of game he's involved in. So he has it both ways. He can do everything terrible that he's always always dreams of doing and consider himself not only good, but good even at a higher level than the people he was actually afflicting. And of course, that was the standard description of what happened in the Soviet Union. And so this Kane mentality, what it ends up resulting in is people... Becoming bitter, becoming vengeful, angry, right? And they begin to start to formulate uh, excuses for this bitterness and this this vengeance that they feel. And that the excuses are usually something like, I'm not successful because this guy is successful. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to take it from him. I'm going to take it back. Right. And you begin to justify murder, theft destruction of property you know etc 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 you begin to justify it you can say well they had it coming right and that's exactly what Cain did Cain said he my brother he had it coming Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. because he stole it from me and of course the answer god gave him in that you know sin lieth at the door part was that no it's not able it's Mm -hmm. you and your terrible attitude Mm -hmm. and if you just change your damn attitude then Maybe, just maybe, you'll be successful too. Mm. And this is, of course, the last thing a nihilistic person wants to hear. The last thing they want to hear is, you're the problem. (laughs) And it's your fault, you know? Oh, yeah. 
that's the last thing they want to hear because that means that they're going to have to do some work, mm-hmm. right, to fix it instead of just go kill somebody and take their stuff, right. you know. Yep. Or if you're able to point the finger and blame someone else, you don't have to. You don't. You can. You can just abdicate all the responsibility. I had nothing to do with this. It was clearly this bastard that stole it all from <laughs> me. You know. Yeah. And and it's it's just lazy. Mm-hmm. It's lazy. Amazing Unbelievably it lazy. Yep. Uh, and so I think that story, that man, that story of Cain and Abel, Genesis four through sixteen, man, that that's one of the it's one of the oldest books like ever. Okay. Oh yeah. Definitely. I mean, it's not the oldest. Yeah. There are, there are books that are much older. Yeah, that's one of. Uh, but it's it's very old, mm-hmm. and it's no surprise to me that it's one of the first stories in this extremely old book that dates back about three thousand years. No accident to me no. that this idea that human beings are extremely or that some human beings who become nihilistic and extremely petty whenever they see someone else being more successful than them, mm-hmm. blame that successful person and then turn their wrath on the successful person. And it, it explains so much of the so many of the problems, especially the problems we had in the 20th century. It explains almost all wars. Mm-hmm. You know, it explains socialism. Mm-hmm. That's what socialism is, that a large group of nihilistic people that think all the rich people stole it from them. Right. So that they got to take it back with force Mm -hmm. right it definitely explains that and i think it it explains modern nihilism that this is a group of people that has that has continually blamed their problems on someone else point the finger abdicate responsibility completely abandon responsibility for themselves say it wasn't my fault it's not my fault it's got to be these bastards who are successful and happy Mm -hmm. it's got to be yep and uh this particular this particular mindset is explained in a book. <laughs> if you haven't noticed, I do a lot of reading. Noticed. And writing, too. Right? Uh, <laughs> this particular mindset was explained in a book called Wisdom. Wisdom. Wisdom is a book that was uh, up for canonization in the Bible. They almost put it in the Bible the last minute. They said no. Right. Oh, not the book of wisdom, but just wisdom. It's just called wisdom. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, it's just called wisdom. Um, and Dr. Jordan B. Peterson actually quotes this particular part of wisdom quite a bit, but he doesn't quote, he doesn't finish the whole thing. I mean, I, I'm not talking about reading the whole book. Right, you know, right. There's a lot more to the quote. He, he stops about halfway, and I'm not going to do that because it explains nihilism so thoroughly. Now, this particular book is anywhere between 1,500 and 2,000 years old. All right, so this idea of nihilism and, and what it results in, where it comes from and what it results in, uh, is not a new idea. Mm-hmm. This has been going on for a long time. And people, people have been combating this mindset for a very, very long time. Wisdom 2, the Revised Standard Version, uh, the Standard Version Catholic Edition. For they reasoned unsoundly, saying to themselves, Short and sorrowful is our life, and there is no remedy when a man comes to an end. And no one has been known to return from Hades, because we are born by mere chance, and hereafter we shall be as though we had never been, because the breath in our nostrils is smoke, and reason is a spark kindled by our beating hearts. When it is extinguished, the body will turn to ashes, and the spirit will dissolve like empty air. Now that right there, that's that materialistic viewpoint. You catch what he was saying yeah, there? Yeah, yeah. He said, reason is a spark kindled in our heart. So if your heart stops beating, you stop reasoning. Yeah. Right? Uh, breath is smoke in our nostrils. Our spirit dissipates when we die. That's saying essentially that your your very being is material and material only. 
Oh, right? Okay. You see, and that this idea, this materialistic uh, idea, has been around for quite a long time. This idea that if or that that we're only material and that our consciousness is rooted in our biology and our biology only, and that particular mindset tends or that particular set of beliefs tends to lead to nihilism, mm. right? So think atheist, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Now, this isn't me bagging on atheists either because there are plenty of great atheists out there, okay? Of course. But what I am saying is that atheism oftentimes leads to nihilism, right? This idea that there's nothing out there but the physical universe, mm. If it can't be measured by the five senses, then it doesn't exist. Right. You know? Right. All right. So, you see, and reason is a spark kindled by our beating hearts. When it is extinguished, the body will turn to ashes and the spirit will dissolve like in, like empty air. Our name will be forgotten in time and no one will remember our works. Our life will pass away like the traces of a cloud and be scattered like mist that is chased by the rays of the sun and overcome by its heat. For our allotted time is the passing of a shadow, and there is no return from our death, because it is sealed up and no one turns back. Come, therefore, let us enjoy the good things that exist, and make use of creation to the full as in youth. Let us take our fill of costly wine and perfumes, and let no flower of spring pass us by. Let us crown ourselves with rosebuds before they wither. Let none of us fail to share in our revelry. Everywhere, let us leave signs of enjoyment because this is our portion and this is our lot. So that is the pursuance of impulsive, impulsive pleasure. Mm-hmm. So if you if you believe that there's nothing beyond the five senses and there's nothing beyond biology, mm-hmm. right? That uh, that everything is just a materialistic, atheistic kind of viewpoint. Right. Then the pursuant uh, that justifies the pursuance of impulsive pleasure. Right. Let's get it in now before we die and fade into nothing. Right. Right. And we're seeing this in the modern world more than ever before, where people are always after the uh, the impulsive pleasure now, now, now. Like and and the idea of sacrifice or uh, working hard now to get something later is getting thrown out the window. Mm -hmm. Right. People nowadays are, are pursuing impulsive pleasure at a rate that I believe is lethal. And of course, you can see the pursuance of personal of or of uh, uh, impulsive pleasure. Leth- it, it manifests itself in a lethal fashion and stuff like heart disease. Mm-hmm. You get heart disease because you pursued impulsive pleasure too much. Too much, right? You know, it wasn't one time. It didn't happen overnight. Yeah, yeah. You kept on pursuing right. impulsive pleasure. You kept right. on eating those cheeseburgers. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. If anybody in the whole world, I love cheeseburgers. Oh, me too, man. God, do I love them. But me they'll, too. they'll kill you to death. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, they'll kill you dead. A heart attack by 40. If you, it yeah, if you don't control your impulse, mm-hmm. you know, if you don't control your impulses, it will kill you. And that's anything. Yeah. It doesn't matter what it is. It can be cheeseburgers. It can be sugar. It can be skateboarding. You skateboard too much. You can break your legs 30 times, and now you can't walk anymore. I mean, you and I are both fans. Look at boxing. There's some people who oh, stuck yeah. around too long. Now, they have you seen them? All I mean, meatheads. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they don't even know what's going on right now. They can't even have a conversation right now because they, they did it too long. And maybe that's – and I, I, I don't think that's um, a good example only because – but they're they, – because they're chasing what they love to do, but when they start chasing, dude, I'm I'm talking about the boxers that only did it to chase the money, not because the right, love, right. You know well, I mean? they're they're chasing impulsive pleasure, right, right, and right. that that constant chasing of 
impulsive pleasure, it leads to bad things. But right. it's it's something that nihilists fall into, and the and the Book of Wisdom clearly points this out that this is what nihilistic people do. Mm-hmm. They don't have long term goals. Mm-hmm. Nihilistic people want pleasure now, now, mm-hmm. now. All right, it goes on further. Uh, because this is our lot. Let us oppress the righteous poor man, and let us not spare the widow, nor regard the gray hairs of the aged. But let us, uh, but let our might be our law of right. For what is weak proves itself to be useless. Let us lie and wait for the righteous man, because he is inconvenient to us and oppresses our actions. He reproaches us for sin against the law, and he accuses us of sin against our training. He pro- he professes to have knowledge of God and calls himself a child of the Lord. He be- he became to us a reproof of our thoughts. Uh, the very sight of him is a burden to us because his manner of life is unlike that of others and his ways are strange. Again, this is another thing. I mean, whoever wrote this and it may be multiple authors, right? But, and the book's so old, no one will know actually who wrote it. Like we'll never know. Um, they nailed this nihilistic mindset. Oh, yeah. Nailed it. Sounds like because it. Because right after the impulsive pleasure mm-hmm. comes the hatred for those who aren't nihilistic, right? Uh, and and also, not just that, but uh, but not paying any attention to those who are downtrodden. You know, it says, uh, let us, well, what was it? Uh, um, um, because he is inconvenient to us. Oh, no. Um, yeah, let us not spare the widow nor regard the gray hairs of the aged. Uh, so it, it also means like you don't got, like I'm too busy pursuing impulsive pleasure. I ain't got time to worry about the old and the sick and the mm-hmm. dispossessed. I forget them. Mm-hmm. You know, and we see a lot of this on the left. And it's funny because the left always preaches that they're um they're they're compassionate towards the dispossessed, the poor, the widows, the uh you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Thing is is that they don't do anything. You know, they say, "Oh, I'm 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 all about helping the, the poor and oppressed, but they themselves just sit on their asses and talk about how they're uh they're all about supporting these people but they don't do anything which shows you their true their true intention they don't care about the poor they don't care about the oppressed they don't care about widows they don't care about racial minorities nothing because they don't do anything they just sit there and preach and preaching don't mean a damn thing again remember it was like what we were saying what you think and what you say means Nothing. nothing what you do is what you truly believe, mm-hmm. right? Right. And so that's that was one of the things about the people on the left that drives me insane is they all want to get on their soapbox and preach at us about how the oppressed are, are oppressed and how the poor, no one's helping the poor and the poor get poorer and all this. Yeah. And they don't do anything. Yeah. They're not volunteering at the local shelters. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not handing food out to the homeless. Yeah, they're just talking. And again, <laughs> even with environmentalism, they're big on environmentalism, but I don't see them picking up any trash. Nope. You know, I don't see them even like stuff like uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. She's been uh, she's been caught on video several times, like by a recycle bin, like not throwing her recyclables in the recycle bin, throwing it in the regular trash can. Really? You know? uh, she did this video for Instagram where she's like cutting up a sweet potato and she doesn't throw it into like a compost bag. No, she throws it in the regular trash, you know, and it just shows she doesn't care. She doesn't really care. Yeah. You know, obviously not. Yeah. I mean, you know, and she burns more fossil fuel than just about any other candidate or did when she was running. Right. uh, Than just about any other candidate getting from a to B, you know, 
And and yet she's telling us that we can't use fossil fuel because we're destroying the environment with it. And it's like, well, what about you? Yeah. You know, what about what you're doing? <laughs> you know, and it just shows you her actions show you her true intentions. Right. She doesn't believe what she's saying. No. Not at all. It just sounds good. Right. And that's exactly what, what's going on here with these with the uh, the the with wisdom in the in the book of wisdom though it's not called the book of wisdom it's right, just right. called wisdom yeah, yeah. Uh, this is what it's talking about you know it's these people don't really care about other people they don't you know uh, let's continue on with the story uh, let us not spare the widow we already got past that uh, because he's inconvenient to us we already got past that uh, and his ways are strange. We are considered by him as something base, and he avoids our ways as unclean. He calls the last end of the righteous happy and boasts that God is his father. Let us see if his words are true, and let us test what will happen at the end of his life. For if the righteous man is God's son, he will help him and will deliver him from the hand of his adversaries. Let us test him with insult and torture that we may find out how gentle he is and make trial of his forbearance. Let us condemn him to a shameful death, for according to what he says, he will be protected. See, this nihilistic mindset, again, it, it, it attacks those who are, who are, by proof of their life and actions, showing that the nihilists are full of shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, whenever a nihilist sees someone who isn't nihilist, or isn't nihilistic, it enrages them because they get to see a full-on living example as to how their lifestyle sucks. Mm-hmm. And the reason their life sucks is because their lifestyle sucks. Right. And so, of course, they want to eliminate any example that, that might run, run contrary to their idea, right? That might show them that you know they could turn their lives around if they weren't so damn lazy, mm-hmm. both intellectually and physically. Mm-hmm. You know, and and philosophically, right. if they weren't so damn lazy about it and just picked themselves up and, and and carried the burden of life with a smile on their face, then maybe their life would turn around. Mm-hmm. But instead, they don't want to do that. They right. want to take any example that might show them that they could do that and kill it off. Right. Yep. Right. That bitter rage that comes with nihilism. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. we don't we don't want to change what we're doing. We no. just we just want to we just want to destroy everything. <laughs> Such a wrong mindset. Such a wrong mindset. Well, it's a good way to destroy the world. Mm-hmm. That's all that is. Especially, oh, definitely. You know, and now that we live in a world that's so wonderful, where all of our needs are immediately taken care of. I mean, I'm telling you, I don't want to. I don't want this to change. No, me I, either. I want it to continue getting better, like it's getting. It's continually getting better. I want that to continue mm-hmm. instead of constantly screaming and bitching and moaning about how it's getting worse despite the fact that there's just no evidence right. uh, for that at all and trying to tear down this wonderful system that we have going mm-hmm. you know that that is going to continue to make things better for future generations you yeah. know yeah it's absolutely ridiculous mm-hmm. now, nihilism is something that uh even really successful people run into mm-hmm. right and so i've got the story of Leo Tolstoy. Now, Leo Tolstoy was an author uh, in the late 19th century, early 20th century. He was born in 1828, died in 1910. Uh, author of War and Peace. Very famous oh, novel. Oh, yeah, of course. Very famous novel. Very familiar. Uh, 
He was nominated for the Nobel Prize in 1901, 1902, and 1910, considered one of the greatest authors of all time. Uh, Leo Tolstoy actually ran into a bout of nihilism in the 1870s. He wrote a book about it called A Confession, right? Uh, and this book is, what are they doing down there? <laughs> I'm sorry, folks. I don't know if you can hear it on the playback, but in our headphones, we are we are hearing some rowdiness going down downstairs. That was a fighter. <laughs> I know, right? I like, it's just JT getting swing? It's just JT getting crunk as hell. Oh. That's all that is. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. But uh, all right, so so he wrote about this experience in the 1870s. He wrote it in a book called uh, A Confession, mm-hmm. uh, and this this was really interesting. So. I'll just go ahead and read off what Tolstoy said now. This is actually me quoting Peterson, quoting Tolstoy. Okay. Right? I got you. I got you. you. Right? So he says, this all happened, this collapse of my belief when I was not yet 50 years old. I should not have been considered, or I should have been considered a completely happy man. I had a good, loving, beloved wife, fine children, and a large estate, growing and expanding without any effort on my part. I was respected by friends and acquaintances, praised by strangers, and could, and could claim a certain renown. I was not physically nor mentally unhealthy. On the contrary, I enjoyed a physical and mental vigor I rarely encountered among others my age. I could keep up with the peasants working in the fields and work eight and ten hours at a stretch without suffering any after effects from the strain. And in such a state of affairs, I came to the point where I could not live. And even though I feared death, I had to employ ruses against myself to keep from committing suicide. It was as though I had lived a little wandered a little until I came to a precipice and I clearly saw that there was nothing ahead except ruin and there was no stopping or turning back no closing my eyes so that I could not see that there was nothing ahead except the deception of life of happiness and of the reality of suffering and death of complete annihilation I stopped early (laughs) I grew sick of life some irresistible force leading me somehow or some irresistible force was leading me somehow to get rid of it this thought was such a temptation that i had to or that i had to use cunning against myself in order not to go through with it and there i was a fortunate man carrying a rope from my room where i was alone every night as i undressed so i would not hang myself from the beam between the closets and i quit going hunting with a gun so that i would not be so easily tempted to rid myself of life i myself did not know what i wanted i was afraid of life i struggled to get rid of it yet i hoped for something from it my position was terrible i knew i could find nothing in the way of rational knowledge except a denial of life and in faith I could find nothing except a denial of reason. And for me, this was even more impossible than a denial of life. According to rational knowledge, it followed that life is an evil, er, it followed that life is evil, and people know it. I describe my spiritual condition to myself in this way. My life is some kind of stupid and evil practical joke that someone is playing on me. In spite of the fact that I did not acknowledge the existence of any someone who might have created me, the notion that someone brought me into the world as a stupid and evil joke seemed to be the most natural way to describe my condition. I could not be deceived. All is vanity. Happy is he who has never been born. Death is better than life. He must. We must rid ourselves of life. 
having realized all the stupidity of the joke that is played on us and seeing the blessings of the dead are greater than those of the living and that it is better not to exist the strong act and put an end to this stupid joke. And they use any means of doing it, a rope around the neck, water, a knife to the heart, or a train. How, how dark a place do you have to be in to where you have to hide ropes from yourself. Where you have to take all the ropes in your house and give them to your servants and be like, please hide these where I can't find them. How dark a place do you have to be where you're hiding the guns from yourself so you don't blow your brains out? How dark a place do you have to be to live in such comfort and luxury, which in Russia was extremely rare. Leo Tolstoy is Russian. In the late 19th century, it was extremely rare to be rich and prosperous Right for a Russian. Mm-hmm. How dark a place do you have to be to be that rich and prosperous and still want to kill yourself every day and see no reason to live? Right. You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, I honestly can't conceive of it. Like, I can't imagine being in a place like I that. I can't either. I can't even picture it. I, I think we've all had our bouts with suicidal thoughts, but... That's a whole that's, nother yeah, level. Yeah, that's that's a whole nother level. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing about Tolstoy, though, is that he recovered. And he ended up becoming an extremely, I mean, he was already an extremely successful author, but he became an extremely successful Christian author. He, he was a Russian Orthodox. And he wrote many, many books on, uh, on religion, uh, being a good Christian, um, and uh, nonviolence. In fact, it was Gandhi. Uh, Gandhi was highly influenced by Tolstoy uh, in his approach uh, to nonviolence. But how did Tolstoy get out of this? How did he get out of this funk, man? Well, he had a dream, a vision, right? Mm-hmm. And this dream was it was really, I don't know, it's hard to explain. Um, and it's definitely difficult to explain how this turned him around. Mm-hmm. But I think I got a, a pretty good one. Okay. So he had a vision, a dream, that he was suspended above oblivion right Mm -hmm. like just an empty vast void he was suspended by the waist and he just hung over the void and as he stared at the void it began to come to him right he began to have a moment of ecstasy in the classical sense a religious experience right he was overcome with joy as he hung and stared into oblivion you could even think of this as like hell you know, and as he stared, he, he was overcome with joy and he woke up from the dream in a state of ecstasy and turned everything around. It was like seeing that juxtaposition, seeing it's like staring into the void, like showed him like it could be so much worse, buddy. Right. Oh, you know, okay. it could be so much worse. Dang, you got it good. <laughs> right. But I, when I heard this, I knew I had heard the story before. Uh-huh. It's like, what? Where did I hear this damn story? Uh-huh. I knew I had heard it. And I, I was racking my brain. I've got an extensive, uh, like, extensive collection of mythologies stored in right. my mind, you know? Right. And I knew it had to have been mythology that I heard it. And it was. Okay. It was the story of Odin. Oh. Odin, the Norse god, which, by the way, is nothing like he's depicted in the Marvel movies. <laughs> yes. Nothing. nothing. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> Odin was actually uh, more of a trickster or just as much of a trickster as Loki, uh, his son. Right. Uh, Odin had almost no respect for law and order, had almost no respect for authority, though he was the top authority. He had 
But no, for the idea of authority, he could have cared less. He would trick people into fighting each other, gods and people, into fighting each other just because he thought it was fun. Mm-hmm. But uh, primarily, he was a shaman. He was like the shaman of the gods. He worked magic. That was his thing. He was the he was the magician, the wizard of okay. the Norse gods. Uh-huh. But he was constantly wandering. He was known as the wanderer. And the reason he wandered was because he was in search of knowledge and wisdom. That was his top priority. Number one, knowledge and wisdom above all other things. Right? Uh, one of the more popular stories about Odin was how he... Uh, how he uh, oh, what was it? Oh, yes. How in, in search of wisdom, he went down to a well where the, the roots of the world tree in North mythology, the whole cosmos is a giant tree. And the roots of the world tree are uh, they're rooted in a well. And in the wells is the waters of chaos. From mm-hmm. the waters of chaos, all knowledge springs forth. Mm-hmm. And this, of course, makes sense from a mythological perspective because you know, water is always chaos and chaos is always the unknown, right? And the, that which you don't know, like you don't know it before you know it. Mm-hmm. Like things that you know, you know, b- but before you knew them, you didn't know them, right? Mm-hmm. They came from chaos, the unknown. Right. And you explored chaos. And found them in the chaos. And then they, they went from the classification of unknown things to known things. Right? So he goes to the chaotic waters of the well. Mm-hmm. And he, he wants to get the knowledge. Well, there's a uh, there's a, a guardian named Mimir. I hope I'm saying that right. M-I-M-I-R. And Mimir tells him, nah, I'm not giving you this water unless you make a sacrifice. And so he cuts out his eye. Mm-hmm. He, sacrifices his eye for wisdom for knowledge and of course he drinks the the knowledge the unknown he takes the unknown and puts it in himself right and voluntarily puts the unknown in himself and it and uh absorbs the wisdom of the unknown right uh there was another story then this was the one that correlates with the with the Tolstoy story Mm -hmm. so Yggdrasil the world tree and I probably said that all wrong Y-G-G-D-R-A-S-I-L grows out of the well of Erd and that's that's the well he went down to to get the waters Mm -hmm. right of wisdom the Norns live in the well now the Norns are like the Greek fates Mm -hmm. and it makes sense that they're female because the unknown is always depicted as female in mythology okay the unknown is the great mother, and so it's always feminine. It doesn't always have to be female, but it's definitely always feminine, mm-hmm. right? So the unknown is female. The known is male, and the, the hero is usually a male as well. And so the male penetrates the unknown, right, mm-hmm. the female or right. the feminine, and from that penetration, from that exploratory penetration, comes the birth of new knowledge. Mm-hmm. Makes sense, right? Right, yep. Yeah. So the Norns live in the well and write the fates on the trunk of Yggdrasil with the runes. So the Norns are like the Greek fates. They write out the fate, but they do it on the world tree with the runes. Mm -hmm. Now, rune has two different meanings. It means letter and it means secret. Mm -hmm. So Odin saw the Norns doing their thing from the top of the tree because that's where the gods live. It's the very, very tippy top. And he got jealous. Mm -hmm. He wanted the knowledge, right? Mm Mm-hmm. But he knew that the that the runes weren't going to reveal themselves to someone that hadn't proven worthy of their wisdom, worthy of their knowledge. He knew he had to make a sacrifice, just like he did with his eye, mm-hmm. to get the, the 
the wisdom from the waters. So he, he ordered all of the gods to not assist him at all whatsoever. Like you can't, you can't help me. He says, not even a sip of water can't help me in this endeavor that I'm about to undertake. He hangs himself from the world tree by the neck with a noose, stabs himself in the side with a spear, and hangs there over the void of the waters of chaos for nine days. Hangs above the void wow. for nine days, just like Tolstoy in Tolstoy's dream. Mm-hmm. That was a little different. Tolstoy was uh, was suspended by his waist. Right, right. But still, the, same but, concept, yeah, same, the principle is the same. same yeah. He's staring at the unknown. Right, mm-hmm. and he made a voluntary sacrifice, a pr- you know, which it's a that was a hell of a sacrifice. He hung himself by the neck and stabbed himself in the side with a, you know, with a spear. Mm-hmm. And and again, if if you know some gears are starting to turn in some of y'all's minds that are listening, yes, this does sound familiar. Yeah, that's right. things starts with a J. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez, yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, hung from a yeah. tree. You know, well, I, I mean, had the same thought in my mind. Right, and right. then also you've got uh, Krishna, mm-hmm. the uh, Hindu's Christ figure, who was also he was hung on a tree, except for he was he he was nailed there like Christ was on right. the, on the cross, but he was shot in the side with arrows, mm-hmm. and so it's the same thing. You have a wound in the side, right, and 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 uh, and you're hanging from a tree right. of some kind, some wooded thing, <laughs> <laughs> you know, or wooden thing. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily have to be a tree, uh, but. He, the, the correlation is there. And the idea is that this is a voluntary sacrifice. Jesus' sacrifice was a voluntary sacrifice. Krishna's sacrifice is a voluntary sacrifice. Odin's sacrifice is a voluntary sacrifice. Right? You sacrifice yourself mm-hmm. in order for tran- in order to get transcendent knowledge. Right? So Odin hangs over the void for nine days. And after nine days, the runes reveal themselves out of the void. Right? And they don't just reveal themselves in form. They reveal their secret meaning. And Odin has a moment of ecstasy in the classical sense. He has a right. religious experience. Right? And he exclaims. He says, you know, it just says like he exclaims. It's kind of like a eureka kind of thing. Like, yeah. eureka! Yeah. You know? And that frees him from the noose. Uh, heals the the wound in his side, and he's placed back on top of the tree. Mm-hmm. And with the knowledge of the runes, the knowledge of the runes ga- gave him the power to alter reality itself. He could put out fires or start fires. He could free people from chains. He could render weapons useless. So you mm-hmm. come at him with a weapon, he could just speak a few words, and the weapons became absolutely useless. Right. Yeah, you know, right. he, he could save people like that. You know, like his family, whenever they get in trouble, he'd just show up, say a few words, and bang, they're out of the trouble. Mm-hmm. You know, so the runes, the wisdom in the runes was the ability to manipulate reality itself, which is what we do as human beings. We right. manipulate reality. Yeah. We go out and we cut a forest down and we build a city. Before there was a forest, now there's a city. Now, of course, we don't do it at the utterance of a few words, mm-hmm. but the the you know this is mythology. These are ancient people. They didn't think in scientific terms. They thought in allegorical terms, in metaphorical terms, and you know they described things in romantic allegory. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's what human is what we as human beings do. We alter reality, and we do so many times with our words. How many books? How many publications? How many pieces of literature have changed the human world forever? Stuff like the Bible. Yeah, the words in the Bible. Mere, mere words, mm-hmm. mere words have steered the course of human history for three 
thousand years. That's power right there. Mm-hmm. That's power. Yep. And you see, this is this is what what this is you know what Tolstoy what Tolstoy experienced was what Odin went through in his story. And Odin later describes uh, Odin later describes what he went through as a uh, as sacrificing his lower self to his higher self. Now that lower self we read about that in wisdom. That's mm-hmm. the self that says, "Oh, life is short." Who cares? It's all going to end soon, so let's just pursue uh, uh, impulsive pleasure. Let's just do that. Who cares? That's the lower self. You sacrifice that part of you mm-hmm. in order to gain transcendent knowledge. You kill that dead part of you because that's what it is. It's dead. Right. All right. You burn it off with a with a with a uh, with a significant sacrifice with a with a significant labor mm-hmm. if you are a burden right and the work of that labor the work of that burden burns off that dead person that pursues impulsive pleasure and sees life as a meaningless you know nihilistic uh, pessimistic experience mm-hmm. burns it all off and kills it and you ascend into a higher level of being just like with christ with christ's sacrifice all right He's crucified on the cross. It gets tortured and killed in one of the most horrible ways imaginable. Right. And is resurrected as a whole nother being that's beyond physical pain. Mm -hmm. That's beyond the physical world in general. It's the same with Hercules, too. He goes through 12 trials, which end up being 13, right? Because 12 is always 13 in disguise for those of you who who are uh, not well-versed in mythology. (laughs) That's anytime you see the number 12 in mythology, it's actually 13 in disguise. Right. He goes through these 12 trials, which were thought to be impossible, right? And for most people, they would be. And as he goes through each trial, another part of him is killed off. Mm -hmm. Another part of his, the the lower self is killed off. Like the phoenix, right? The phoenix burns itself up and rises from its ashes, its own ashes. Mm -hmm. But that's what these trials are, is is, uh, uh, Hercules going through this constant burning and resurrection of himself. He burns the old self and resurrects as a new self with each trial. And at the very end of it, after the 13th trial, he fails and dies. But that is the final sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And that final sacrifice makes him worthy of resurrection. And Hercules is resurrected as a god. Right? Mm -hmm. And this is what mythology is telling us. And what Tolstoy's dream was telling him is that you have to pursue the unknown shoulder the burden of of uh exploring the unknown which is hard and it sucks and it's going to burn away that dead self that old self that hates life that's pessimistic that's a, that's nihilistic mm-hmm. that's negative all the time and each trial it's going to burn it away and you're going to resurrect each time as a better person until you reach that final sacrifice mm-hmm. that makes you into the transcendent being um i th- i think this is tolstoy just he unconsciously came to the same conclusion that the mystics and uh, the ancients uh, had come to thousands of years before and, and told in stories. And, and I, I think that this is something that we need to recapture today. People need to be more aware of mythology and of religious teaching because that's what it's all about. That's mm-hmm. what mythology and religious teaching are all about. You pursue that which is unknown, right? And it sucks and it's hard and it hurts. And each with each encounter with the unknown, yes, you do get a bit damaged. 
but that damage then heals and you become a better self with each encounter with the unknown. But you have to do so voluntarily. Right. 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 Mm-hmm. In mythology and in uh, religious teaching, the unknown is known as the great mother. Mm-hmm. Right. And the great mother has two sides and they're one and the same. Right. The beneficial mother and the terrible devouring mother. And it all depends on how you approach the Great Mother as to which one manifests. Uh, Dr. Jordan B. Peterson in his books, in his book Maps of Meaning, which I would suggest go pick up and read. It's very hard to read, but man, there's so Some many gems stuff. of wisdom in there. Yeah. yeah. Maps of Meaning, page 172. We've already discussed the fact that the valiance of an object switches with context of interpretation. It is the knowledge of this idea that allows for comprehension for the comprehension of the meaning of the sacrificial attitude. The beautiful countenance of the beneficial mother is the face of the un- is the face the unknown adopts when approached from the proper perspective. Right. So what he's saying is, when you approach the unknown without fear, when you approach the unknown with courage, forthrightly, mm-hmm. then the unknown manifests itself as the beneficent mother, the mother from which all things are born. Because you know all all knowledge that is unknown. Is it has the potential to? I mean, you know, like all, all knowledge that is unknown has the potential to make the world better and to make you a better person, right? Right. right. And all that's it's unknown. So that unknown aspect, it can either be terrible, it can be the panther lurking in the darkness, or it can be the next uh, technology that saves mankind. You know, mm-hmm. kind of like GMOs did. Uh, and I know a lot of people don't think this, but genetically modified crops save the damn world. Yeah. If it weren't for genetically modified crops, a lot of the third world would have starved by now because now we can grow wheat and corn in the desert. Mm-hmm. We can grow it in places where there are a lot of pests. All right? And without this ability to, to grow this food in places where food can normally not be grown, a lot of third world people would have starved to death by now. Mm-hmm. And that knowledge to do that was in the darkness. It was unknown. But the guy who figured it out approached the unknown forthrightly with courage, and there the and there the the face of the beneficent mother made itself apparent to him because he approached it right. Right, right. And if you approach the unknown wrong mm-hmm. with fear and trepidation and anxiety, right. here comes the devouring mother, and she will take you out. Mm-hmm. That, you know, In a heartbeat. That's exactly what she'll do. Mm-hmm. But you have to have the courage to approach this this entity that will rip you to pieces and sometimes will damage you. Even if you do it right, you'll still kind of come out damaged. Um, the uh, uh, He talks about, Jordan B. Peterson talks about it in Maps, in, in Maps of Meaning on page 171 about how uh, people who are, who go to get psychological treatment are taught how to approach the unknown in the proper fashion. So check this out. Modern treatment for disorders of anxiety, uh, to take a specific example, desensitization, involves exposing an individual ritualistically, that is, under circumstances rendered predictably by authority, to novel or otherwise threatening stimuli with appropriate reactions modeled by the authority. Such desensitization theoretically induces habituation. 
What is actually happening is that the guided exploration in the course of behavior therapy produces reclassification and behavioral adjustment such that the once terrifying thing or once again terrifying thing is turned back into something controllable familiar and known voluntary exposure additionally teaches the previously anxiety-ridden individual that the non-trivial lesson that he or she is capable of facing the place of fear and prevailing the process of guided voluntary exposure it appears to produce therapeutic benefit even when the thing being avoided is traumatic mm-hmm. so what he's saying there is when people get when they get therapy what the therapist does is they slowly but surely introduce them to the thing that they fear little bit by little bit by little bit by little bit until they get bored with it. Mm -hmm. Say you have a death... uh, uh, Jordan B. Peterson, Dr. Jordan B. Peterson uses the the fear of elevators a lot. He says agoraphobia, but the fear of elevators a lot. He says, well, first you, you walk them up to the elevator and, you know, let's have have them six feet away from the elevator and you have them stare at the elevator until they're bored of it. They are ter- they're terrified of elevators, mm-hmm. but if they stare at it long enough and realize that nothing bad's going to happen to them, they get bored, right? right? Then they can get four feet from it. Then they can get three feet from it. Then they can get two feet, one foot. Then you have them maybe peek their head in, you know? Mm-hmm. And as they get closer and closer and closer to it, and they do so without anything bad happening to them, right. the fear of the elevator goes away mm-hmm. because they get habituated to it. And on top of that, they're, you're teaching them, you know, because the authority figure, the therapist is there and he's approaching the elevator without fear, obviously, because he's not afraid of the elevator. Right. And so they're looking to the authority figure as their example and they're seeing, OK, he's approaching, he or she is approaching the elevator without fear. Maybe I should, too. Mm-hmm. And this is how human beings learn. We mimic behavior that we admire. And that's why we make stories. All the stories are of of people or you know hypothetical people or gods whose behavior we admire right? right and when an admirable behavior is mimicked if it's a good behavior it gets mimicked by a lot of people for a long time and then it becomes a part of culture because we mimicked it for so long it's not even mimicked anymore it's mm-hmm. it's built into the very culture itself right and that's where good behaviors come from mm-hmm. right? they come from uh, first, it's it's abstracted in story. Well, first it's observed. Someone observes the behavior. Then they abstract it in story and try to mimic it. You know, after the story has been told, you know, you, like a kid plays. Right, a, kid, right. a kid pretends to be a knight. Why? Because knights are virtuous and brave and courageous. Right. Right. And the kid's pretending to be a knight because he admires that behavior. Mm-hmm. And then you mimic it long enough, it, it just becomes a part of your very being. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. No doubt. And so what he's saying there that is, is that when people approach the unknown correctly, mm-hmm. the results are completely different than when they approach the unknown with anxiety and fear. Mm. And that, that's the story that mythology tells us, man. Read some mythology. Get out there. Read some religious texts. You don't have to be religious. No. Just understand what the religious texts are trying to tell you. Mm-hmm. They're trying to tell you that when you approach the unknown courageously, forthrightly, Right. That the unknown will reveal to you the beneficent or the beneficial or beneficent and beneficial knowledge that before you didn't have mm-hmm. because it's unknown. Right. You know? Yep. Yep. And, and it's crazy how that works, man. That is crazy. That is crazy. Wow. I mean, it, it, 
the reason I, I love the hero myth and Jordan, Dr. Jordan B. Peterson puts it into words that I could, I just, I wish I was as articulate as this guy. <laughs> oh, he's a genius. He, he says stuff like, okay, so the hero myth, and this is on a uh, maps of meaning, or this is from maps of meaning page 180. This idea, and he's talking about the hero myth, this idea renders individual creativity socially acceptable and provides the precondition for change. The most fundamental presumption of the myth of the hero is that the nature of human experience could be, should be, improved by voluntary alteration in individual human attitude and action. Individual attitude and action. That's why the hero is an individual. Right. Because we as human beings can only make our world better as individuals. Mm -hmm. If the individual isn't taking care of their shit, Mm -hmm. then the community can't take care of their shit. You know what I'm saying? Communal action doesn't matter if all the individuals are compromised. Mm -hmm. You know, people try to think of things in terms of a collective. You're wrong. Right. You know, Mm -hmm. it starts with individuals. Collectives mean nothing without individuals. You can't have a virtuous collective without virtuous individuals. Right. Right. Uh, Individual. Let's see. uh, Individual human attitude and action. This statement, the historical hypothesis, is an expression of faith in human possibility itself and constitutes the truly revolutionary idea of historical man. Mm. He, He goes on to say. And this is uh, from Maps of Meaning, page 176. The spirit forever willing to risk personal, more abstractly intrapsychic destruction to gain redemptive knowledge might be considered the ar- archetypical representation of the adaptive process as such. So the hero that goes out and voluntarily faces the unknown at, at mortal peril, that's, that's the process of adaptation. You know, mm-hmm. human adaptation. We adapt to things by going out and forthrightly approaching them exploring them without fear without trepidation and anxiety right. that's how we adapt um, right mm-hmm. the pre-experimental mind he's talking about ancient people the pre-experimental mind considered traumatic union of this masculine representative with the destructive and procreative feminine unknown a necessary precedent to continual renewal and rebirth of the individual and community On page 135, he says, In improving the world, the hero improves himself. In improving himself, he sets an example for the world. You know? Mm -hmm. He goes even further and says, The hero is a pattern of action. And this is page 185. Mm -hmm. The hero is a pattern of action designed to make sense of the unknown. He emerges necessarily whenever human beings are successful. Adherence to this central pattern ensures that respect for the process of exploration and the necessary reconfiguration of belief attendant upon the process always remains superordinate to all other considerations, including that of the maintenance of stable belief. So what he's saying there is that the hero is the example that shows people that you need to learn new things and adopt new behaviors more than you need to hold on to what you believe. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, Makes sense. and that's what the hero shows us. Mm-hmm. The hero shows us that when you when you adopt responsibility voluntarily and approach the unknown at mortal peril to yourself, right. that you will find knowledge that will make you a better person. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm hmm. And it's going to hurt. Knowledge and courage. It's yeah. going to suck. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. it's going to tear you to pieces sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, and and that this process of learning new things, right? Well, first, adopting responsibility, approaching the unknown, learning new things, 
and then uh, instantiating those new things in yourself and in society is more important than holding on to what you already know. Because mm-hmm. you already know what you know. Right. You know, what you don't know is what's important. And that's what the hero tells us. That's what the hero myth tells us. And that's that's why I'm going to be focusing a lot on the hero myth on this show, mm-hmm. uh, the Corpus Christi Coastal Bent. We're mm-hmm. gonna we're gonna delve a lot into mythology. Not not on this episode. We did a little bit with the Odin story. Yeah, for sure. We did a little bit, but very interesting story, man. Right? Very very es- interesting. Es- I love that, especially how it correlates with Tolstoy's dream and that's Tolstoy's very, vision. Yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah, no doubt. That's what makes it so interesting, I think, to me. No, and it's one of those things that, man, I'm, I'm telling you, all this nihilism, this pessimism, this anti-humanism, uh-huh. all of this is coming from the fact that people are not adopting responsibility. Mm-hmm. They're not, they're not adopting the motif of the hero, and the hero myth. They're not approaching the unknown forthrightly, mm-hmm. and they're not, they're not learning new things, mm-hmm. and then disseminating that information to society right right they're just sitting on their asses <laughs> you know yep. they're sitting there in their comfortable little world where everything they know surrounds them mm-hmm. and the unknown can't get in mm-hmm. well in the stories in mythology that's usually that that's expressed in a king mm-hmm. who's sick right he, that's culture the king right, right and the king is sick and the king usually needs something like the water of life Mm-hmm. Well, the water, again, water is chaos. Chaos is the unknown, mm-hmm. right? So the king needs the water of life. Well, that means the king is suffering from a lack of the unknown, a lack of approaching the unknown forthrightly, learning new things, and then instantiating those new things into his behavior and, and culture's behavior as a whole, mm-hmm. right? So in the story, a hero is born. It's usually the king's son that has to go out, find the water of life, the unknown, Right, bring the water of life back to the king to bring life back into the king. Right, and that's I think a lot of this nihilism is coming from the fact that people are not forthrightly experiencing the unknown, and and they're just rotting. They're right. rotting. Mm-hmm. It's like a bunch of heroes that that just never go on adventures. That's what's happening. <laughs> it's like we got a bunch of heroes that just sit at home and play PUBG. Yeah, you know, and <laughs> Fortnite, which are both horrible games oh, that you should never horrible. play yeah. because they're just terrible video games they are i agree you know <laughs> it's it's unbelievable man i know i've been rambling a lot i haven't given you a chance to talk at all <laughs> no man <laughs> so no i'm taking i'm down. actually taking a lot in this is a lot of stuff i'm learning with the audience actually honestly yeah yeah this, this um, oh that's good yeah this is stuff i'm like whoa wow you know um i i i want to go back to something early we talked about yeah um Oh, I guess Aurelius. Uh, you said his something that caught my attention. I wanted to ask you this at the end of this yeah. show. You said his son wasn't a very good person. No, his son was terrible. Commodus. Okay, tell me about that. That that. So Commodus was constantly trying to prove himself to to the Roman people that he was like that he was the greatest emperor and that he was like a god. Okay, like he was one of those. Uh, he went into the he fought in the arena. Okay, to you know like make himself look more powerful than he really was. And of course, some of the fights, you know, you fight in the arena against gladiators and you're the emperor. Like, who's going to want to kill the emperor? Right, right, you know? right. <laughs> I mean, that was, just, that was just so 
brilliant. That that really blew my mind. Yeah, yeah. Commodus was terrible. And the reason wow. Commodus was terrible is because all of his needs were taken care of immediately when he was a kid. Uh-huh. He was spoiled. He was a spoiled brat. Uh-huh. Now, I think there was a lot more to it than that. That's maybe a bit of an oversimplification. But that, that the behavior, Commodus's behavior as an emperor shows me he was just a spoiled brat. Okay. His father did too good a job of taking care of him. Do some research on that. Yeah, Maybe yeah. Well, uh, actually, Netflix uh, Netflix put out a show called The Roman Empire, uh-huh. and they start out with Commodus. Oh, really? Yeah. They, oh, interesting. They just start at Commodus, I do wow. believe. So, yeah, check it out, Netflix. That's awesome. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. I'll There's, look into it's that. Just called, I think it's just called Roman Empire. Okay. And they start with Commodus. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it's like his father did. And I'm, I'm sure you've seen this. I know I've seen it. It's where you got a father who's just too damn protective and too good at taking care of his kid. Mm-hmm. And his kid becomes a little spoiled brat. Ah, gotcha. Because he never had to work for anything that he had. Gotcha. His, his dad buys him all the, the new silver spoon in your mouth. Exactly. The old silver spoon. Yeah. His dad gets him everything he needs. Right. And so by the time he becomes an adult, He's not an adult. He's still a little kid. Mm-hmm. That's Commodus. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Very and, interesting. And I do believe that Commodus was eventually, and I may be wrong about this. I need to, to bone up on my, my Roman history. I do believe Commodus was eventually poisoned and killed. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because he was cruel and, and terrible, at, and it was probably the Praetorian Guard, which was the Roman equivalent of the Secret Service. Mm. They probably poisoned him and killed him. Either that or political rivals. Mm. I can't remember... I know he almost died in the arena. A gladiator almost took him out, but I'm pretty sure he gets poisoned. Maybe a woman that poisoned him. I can't remember. Wow, exactly. interesting. Yeah, I'll check that out. But he 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 gets killed because he's a terrible emperor mm-hmm. that spent he spent a bunch of money flippantly and okay, just, just mean as hell. Gotcha. Yeah, definitely interesting. Definitely interesting. Check that out more. I'll do some more research on that. And Netflix, you said. I'll check that out. Yeah, Roman Empire. Check that out. And, you know, I think Commodus is a great example of a nihilistic person. He was a very nihilistic person. Mm-hmm. He, you know, because he just, everything was taken care of. And he never had to approach the unknown forthrightly and learn anything. Because everything was taken care of for him. And what happened? He became a vicious, vile human being mm-hmm. that okay. treated other people that were treated other people less than people mm-hmm. you know okay and i think he really bought into the idea that he was a god mm-hmm. you know like a lot of roman emperors in the past uh you know caligula right, who would right. dress up as the gods he would even dress up as like aphrodite a goddess <laughs> really? and walk around in the streets telling everyone he was a god <laughs> you know uh, nero did the same thing acted as if he was a god there were several that did okay. so julius caesar claimed uh, uh lineage uh to aphrodite mm-hmm so like you know he would like when he was tracking back his ancestors he would track them all the way back to Aphrodite okay. so he believed he was a, a, a an ancestor of the gods hmm. you know and this is what nihilistic people do gotcha you know? <laughs> <laughs> nihilistic people are very narcissistic right you know? right I, mean, I figured it out and, just and, with this show <laughs> right and and so I believe that we can battle nihilism through the presentation of the facts mm-hmm. that the world's getting better. And through presentation of mythology and religious texts mm-hmm. that teach you how to defeat nihilism. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's through the voluntary acceptance of suffering and approaching the unknown forthrightly, having it a, a damn adventure, mm-hmm. you know, picking right, up right. a burden, lifting it and carrying it so far that it kills you, mm-hmm. you know, but you do it, but it, it kills your lower self. 
And your higher self rises out of the ashes. And you become a whole new person that doesn't mind that you have to sacrifice. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mind that life is suffering. And it's one of the the core tenets of Buddhism. Life Mm -hmm. is suffering. It's the core tenet of Christianity. What's the symbol of Christianity? The cross with a dead Jesus on it. You know, suffering. Suffering. Life is suffering. Yeah, Yeah. life is suffering. Mm -hmm. And once you get that through your head, that yeah. life is suffering, it's not so bad. That's a relief for some people. Yes. Talk about that's a relief for some people. Yes. Like, oh, this is normal. Oh, yeah. thank Everyone oh, goes gosh. through this? Yes. yes. Thank God. Everyone goes through this. It's not this. just me. Yes. yes. Life is suffering, and if you go forth in a forthright manner and accept the burden of, of suffering and do so courageously, then things happen that you couldn't even imagine right. happening. You lose the suicidal thoughts, you lose the narcissism, you lose the nihilism, and you become a person that works actively to make your world a better place. Mm -hmm. Not only through your your active like uh like behavior, but through example. People start to watch you, admire your behavior, and then start to mimic that behavior Mm -hmm. because that's what people do. They mimic behavior they admire. And whenever you're you're putting out a good example and people are mimicking your behavior. You're making the world a better place. Right. right. You're actively making the world a better place. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's how we defeat it. I think that's how we beat nihilism. Mm-hmm. It's through mythology and through presenting the facts. Makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You got anything else to add? No, actually, what's um? Actually, I would like to for the people to know what our next episode is going to be at. I know we have an abortion episode coming up very soon. Don't know if it's our next one, but I do know we have one. Yeah, we have one in the works with Sarah Marie Simon. Yeah. Uh, local comedian. She's approved that we, we, we can say her name. That yeah, we, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's gonna be interesting. It's gonna be fun. The that's only fun. the only problem I have right now is a scheduling conflict. Right. She's not off on Sundays, and we like to do these shows on Sundays. Mm-hmm. Um, we have been doing them on Tuesdays, but that's not because we wanted to. It was just like because we had to. Yeah. She's not off on Sundays though, so we're gonna have to find a way. Maybe we can do it somewhere else. Yeah, you know, shoot the interview with her somewhere else. But we'll figure it out. Yeah, we'll figure it out. <laughs> the abortion episode is definitely happening. It's on the works. Uh, on the works. Further episodes, we're going to be exploring mythology, the story of the Enuma Elish, uh, the Mesopotamian creation story, the Egyptian uh, Horus and Osiris story, uh, many other stories from the Bible. Yep. Um, in, in an effort to show people that they can combat nihilism. First off, that they are nihilists. Right. Secondly, that they can combat nihilism mm-hmm. and that the, that the alternative to being nihilistic is much better. It's much better to be the kind of person that loves life and, and lives life in such a way that they're a good example to others mm-hmm. and other people then mimic their behavior and right. actively makes the world a better place. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're actually probably, you know, right now doing a pretty good job of it. I mean, yeah, if, Steven, I so. if Stephen Pinker's book enlightenment now is any indicator mm-hmm. because the world is getting much, 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 much better by leaps and bounds. Yep. And so that means a lot of people are doing a good job and a lot of other people are mimicking that behavior, mm-hmm. you know? Right. Right. And so, you know, we just need to continue. We can't lose face. We can't lose faith in ourselves and that's what i feel like is happening we're losing faith in ourselves Mm -hmm. we can't do that man Mm -hmm. we've got to continue doing what we're doing making the world a better place Mm -hmm. that's that's what i hope to do with this podcast the the corpus christi coastal bent yes sir right right here at the exchange uh you can find us on youtube corpus christi coastal bent also on anchor anchor.fm slash ccc bent 
from there you can get it you can get access to all the other platforms we're on and I'll be advertising those platforms uh, more extensively when I get them all set up um, uh, I think that's I think that's it for this episode huh I think wrap it. it up yes sir yeah yeah well, this is the Corpus Christi Coastal Bent with me, Scott Brooks, and my co-host. Jeffrey Delgado. Excellent, Jeffrey Delgado. Uh, give a big shout-out to The Exchange. Uh, Hank Harrison, Xavier Ramos, Tony Nichols, um, J.D. Heinrich, uh, Jeremy Wells, and uh, Dave Worth. Dave Worth, yes, sir. Yeah. Yes, sir. Big shout-out to those guys uh, that let us do this show here at The Exchange. We're going to continue doing shows as we continue doing shows. The, the quality and the uh, the content is going to get better and better and better yep. as I learn and Jeff learns more about it. Um, we're just we're just going to keep on trucking with this, man. Mm-hmm. Keep on showing people that they can make the world a better place. They can they can forthrightly advance through the unknown and capture from the unknown the knowledge to make the world a better place and yes. act that knowledge out, which yes. will help others act that knowledge out. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, that's that's our goal here at the Corpus Christi Coastal Bend. Anything else, Jeff? No, but it's been a pleasure. Absolutely, it's a pleasure every time. Oh yeah, actually, as I like to end every episode with, stay positive. Yes, please, please stay positive, so we can continue making the world a better place, so it can continue to improve instead of devolve into a horrible hellhole yes. like the like the Soviet Union yeah. in the early twentieth century, or Germany in the late nineteen thirties, or Cambodia in the sixties, Vietnam in the sixties, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Let's not do that. Let's keep things. Moving in a forward direction. All right, folks, it's been good talking to you. Stay tuned. We're going to have another episode soon. I'm not quite sure when, but we'll figure it out. (laughs) Y'all stay tuned to the Corpus Christi Coastal Bent. This is Scott Brooks and Jeffrey Delgado signing off. We'll talk to y'all later.